listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the evening of Wednesday, the 7th of July in Seoul, and it's the morning in Virginia, where I'm joined via Zoom by today's special guest, Mr. Stephen Began, to talk about his time as special representative to North Korea. But before we do that, I'd like to remind you to please leave a review of this podcast wherever you can and share this episode with everyone you know and three people you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out each and every single day. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. All right, my guest today needs almost no introduction. Stephen Began was the United States Special Representative for North Korea from August 2018 to the end of the administration of President Trump in January this year. And from December 2019 to January 2021, he was also U.S. Deputy Secretary of State under Mike Pompeo. Welcome on the show, Steve Began, and thanks for your time. Thank you, Jacko. I think it's obligatory for all your guests, but I'm a big fan, and ah. uh, it's great to be with you. It's great. I, I hope you heard all 170 plus episodes. I've been browsing them and I've been taking a, <laughs> taking a little bit of a selection, but you've had some uh, great interviews and I, I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Well, that is great. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. A bit of a fan. Uh, I'd like this interview in part to be a sort of oral history of what happened from 2018 to 2020, because not only are people in South Korea uh, wondering you know, about that time, but also people in North Korea and people in the United States and the rest of the world. So it's, uh, it's a lot to cover. Let's see how far we can get today. First of all, how did you end up in government service? So I, um, I have been in and out of government service for half of my career. I've, mm. I've done uh, stints in government, in the nonprofit world, uh, in the corporate world, and uh, back to government. And so there's an uninterrupted trajectory in my career that has taken me into increasingly senior government positions since I, since I first graduated from university in 1986. Mm. So, uh, but the most recent stint came about by a uh, recruitment call from the Secretary of State, who just in advance of the Singapore summit in 2018, was looking for somebody to lead the diplomacy. And through some recommendations he'd received, he reached out to me. And that, that's how the conversation started this time. Amazing. Now, had you already had uh, experience in or, or with Korea by that time? So I had quite a bit of experience with the Korean Peninsula, but almost uh, the vast majority of it was South Korea. I was an executive with uh, Ford Motor Company, and uh, we were deeply engaged in the efforts to crack open the South Korean auto market, mm. uh, including uh, playing a very prominent role in the negotiation, the rejection, and ultimately the approval with our full support of the uh, U.S.-South Korea Free Trade Agreement. But uh, I also, uh, dating back to my career in government in, 19, in the early 1990s, was engaged with or around the North Korea issues, starting with the agreed framework. Uh, and then the uh, the turbulence in the greed framework, the Perry plan, I remember well, meeting with uh, then uh, former Secretary of Defense Perry at that point, and Wendy Sherman, who's now my successor's deputy secretary, mm. to uh, to try to negotiate between the Congress, which is where I was uh, then serving, and uh, the executive branch on a way forward on the Perry plan. And he made a pretty, pretty compelling case at the time, as I recall. That said, Jacko, I don't think anybody in Washington, D.C. would have listed me on their top 100 experts on North Korea in Washington, D.C., but I, don't, I also don't think that's what the president or the secretary of state were looking for when they recruited me. They were looking for somebody with 
good relations on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch with broad reach into the uh, foreign policy community in Washington with uh, a deep background in international relations and also with the um, experience in, in complex and difficult negotiations. It was a bonus that I had done so for uh, quite a while uh, with the South Koreans on auto issues, mm. but I'd never been to North Korea prior to this appointment. Now, so you said uh, that was just before the Singapore summit that you were recruited? Yeah, but unfortunately, I was uh, unable to leave as quickly as the secretary wanted. And so I was uh, at the time just on the cusp of retirement, early retirement age at Ford Motor Company. Mm. I'd worked there for 15 years and was reluctant to leave abruptly at just a couple months shy of my retirement. And so I initially declined the position, uh -huh. but the, um, and the secretary seemed that it was going to be for him likely that he was going to just have to move on with another candidate. And then um, when I became available later in the summer, he was still looking to fill the position and offered it again, and I accepted it. Now, I seem to recall also that uh, on uh, March 1st, 2018, that it was reported that you were a top candidate to replace the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, who was recently on this podcast. Uh, and yet three weeks later, it was announced that McMaster would instead be succeeded by Ambassador John Bolton. Is that accurate? Uh, the press reporting is accurate, uh, and and it's definitely accurate that H.R. McMaster was on your podcast a couple weeks ago. I listened to it, and I enjoyed it immensely. H.R. Uh, is a good friend and uh, was a great leader at a critical time in, in the North Korea portfolio. As far as speculation about uh, jobs I may have may not had, I think it was known that I was uh, I was available and possibly willing and interested to going into the administration in a national security position, but the only position that I was offered and interested in was the North Korea position. Ah, okay. So yeah, by the time you became the uh, the special representative for North Korea, you had just missed the Singapore summit. How did you feel about what was or what had been achieved at Singapore? And what was the mood at the Department of State when you joined? Yeah, so I missed two things. I missed the Singapore summit. And I also missed the follow up visit in July to Pyongyang. Mm. Well, I think like most of the uh, those who follow events in the Korean Peninsula, I was encouraged by the trend that started to develop with the Pyeongchang Olympics and then moved through to the summit in June. And so there certainly was a lot of excitement and a sense of opportunity. And I was really attracted to President Trump's willingness to step outside convention mm. and test a different way to solve a problem that, quite frankly, has persisted way too long for 70 years, the hostility on the Korean Peninsula. Just it almost it has to be manufactured. It would dissipate just, I think, by the forces, forces of nature, if it weren't for uh, you know, active efforts to, to sustain a hostile state of relations on the Korean Peninsula. And so I was, I was quite seized by that. You know, just uh, at the end of 2008, uh, 2017, the last, one of the last major projects I worked on for Ford Motor Company was de-risking our business model and footprint in Northeast Asia mm. uh, in anticipation of a possible conflict on the Korean Peninsula. You know, it's prudent for companies with global supply chains and, and global reach to be mindful of developments, particularly when you can see the signs as far off as is the mounting hostility that we saw on the Korean Peninsula over the course of that year, 2017. And so I had led a, a company effort to review our footprint, our supply chain, where we were vulnerable. And, and we had put together a set of metrics that we were tracking that if X happened, then we would do Y. Mm. And we saw, you know, that list of metrics starting to get checked off from 
you know, tough rhetoric to trade sanctions increasing to uh, to possible even possible evacuation of American personnel from the peninsula. Was that item specifically on your list? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Each of these were, and we had we had in in, in each phase these actions, if they played out, would trigger a reaction to protect the company and its interests right up and until uh, a full war on yeah. the peninsula, God forbid. And so, you know, that, that feeds into my, uh, my interest and my willingness to, to step into this role, because I felt quite strongly that this was one of the most pressing national security issues facing the United States government at that point. Now, between your predecessor, Joe Yoon, leaving the position in March 2018, and when you took over the job in, in August, uh, that post was empty. Was it hard for you to pick up the job with no predecessor to do a handover? Yeah, so first of all, there was a very able team there, led by my deputy, uh, Alex Wong, who was uh, somebody who I was familiar with but had not worked with, who was was a continuous and, and institutional memory throughout the, uh, this period of diplomacy leading up to my arrival. And I inherited a, a very capable team on day one and love that team to this day. What a great group of people to work with. Mm. But also in the interim, uh, Secretary of State uh, asked Ambassador Sung Kim, who was the United States ambassador to the Philippines at the time, to play an interim role. And so Sung Kim was actually supporting huh. the North Korea portfolio in an acting capacity, very much the way that he's been asked to do so now uh, yes. from his uh, perch in Jakarta. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss in a way. Yeah. 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 And a highly capable diplomat, probably one of the most experienced, certainly one of the most senior diplomats that we have in the Foreign Service today. So, yeah. and from my point of view, a very good pick by, uh, by this administration. Over the two and a half years that you were in the position of special representative, how many meetings did you have with North Korean officials? Myself, personally, I had, uh, let's see, counting Pumajam, I had eight meetings I was at. Mm -hmm. Not exclusive of that, but in some cases... You know, the president, of course, had two leader-level summits. Yep. And we had uh, a couple of meetings, one before I came and one after I was there with uh, Kim Yong-chol, mm. with the Secretary of State. Uh, so, uh, and the Secretary of State had the meeting in July. So I think, me personally, eight meetings, Secretary, three meetings, President, three meetings, two two summits and the, um, the meeting at Pumajan Village. So in a numerical sense that we, we had a fairly significant set of meetings, but the challenge was sustaining communication between the meetings because the meetings were then followed by long gaps of, uh, right. of non-communication. Now, did you uh, feel that you built up a rapport with your uh, North Korean interlocutors? Was there mutual respect and trust? To some extent, yes. Um, to, you know, in, in, in Jaco, you understand North Korea. The, the ability of interlocutors to be completely open and engaged is constrained. Hmm. But in the individual meetings, in each meeting, perhaps with the exception of the final meeting in October of 2019, but in each, yeah. each meeting, I did feel like there was at least some, uh, some establishment of a rapport, but you know, there was a, another challenge to hope uh, we confronted during this two and a half years, which is each meeting was led by a different person. Yeah, We didn't really have any sustained engagement with a single set of interlocutors. Okay, well, I'd like to ask you specifically about uh, your counterparts at the negotiating table, and I'll give you some names, and perhaps you can tell us uh, a little bit about them to give us an idea of their character or their temperament or their negotiation style. 
but I don't know where to begin because I actually don't know who the first North Korean was who you met. So um, who comes first on you? Was it Che Sun-hee? First North Korean I met was uh, Foreign Minister Byung-ho, actually. Ah. And so, it, so I started uh, in the position in, in late August of 2018. I actually uh, was due to start at the State Department on September 1st, but a meeting was scheduled for the last week of August in Pyongyang. Mm. And I was coming into the position and the Secretary of State was interested in me being on board for that meeting since he was going to Pyongyang. Yeah. And of course, uh, I wanted to be on too. So I actually took uh, all of my unused vacation at Ford and wow. for the last two weeks came to the State Department early on, on my vacation. And uh, my first day was... Uh, study of a communication we'd received from the North Koreans that rejected uh, the approach of the United States since the Singapore summit and suggested that if the United States was intending to continue to press its demands in the same way that it had in July, that a meeting would not be productive. Mm. And so on my first day, the secretary and I went down to see the president in the Oval Office. Pres uh, secretary briefed the president on the state of play president made a judgment that a visit at that juncture might actually produce a negative outcome and that, that it was clear that we weren't quite ready and aligned on the two sides to move in the direction the president wanted to. So the president suggested uh, canceling the visit. Mm. And so the visit was canceled. But uh, I was I started on, I believe, on a Wednesday and I was uh, literally due to board a plane on Friday and accompany the secretary of state to Pyongyang. Right. Went into a period, we, we postponed, the secretary postponed that trip at the president's uh, direction. And we went into a, a quiet period for some weeks. And then the UN General Assembly occurred in September of mm. 2018. And we went into that meeting, proposed to meet with Foreign Minister Young Ho, but in relatively typical fashion with North Korea, received no response or confirmation as to his willingness to meet. The president gave his remarks at the UN General Assembly, and the secretary also spoke at a UN Security Council session on ways forward on North Korea. And my guess is that that resonated as constructive enough for the North Koreans. We received notice on relatively short uh, order that uh, Foreign Minister Ryung-ho would be prepared to meet. And so there was a meeting, uh, the Secretary and myself and, and Ryung-ho and uh, his ambassador to the United Nations, one of his ambassador level officials to the United Nations, uh, Ambassador Park. And so we met on the margins of the UN General Assembly in 2018. And that was my first meeting with uh, with a North Korean official. Ah, so that first meeting actually took place in, in New York then, uh, on US soil. That's correct. Right. And what was your impression of Ryong-ho that first time? Constructive, a very friendly demeanor, but quite clear that the leadership for the negotiations with the United States uh, resided elsewhere in the North Korean government with Kim Yong-chol. Right. Okay. So does that mean it felt a little bit like you were talking to a mouthpiece, but not somebody who had authority to decide things by himself? It was a genial meeting, but it, it was it, he was quite clear that uh, mm. he was not there uh, to negotiate, that the negotiations would be with the Asian Pacific uh, Peace Commission, I think they call it, the, the, which is the external name right. for the uh, United Front Department. Yeah. Um, and so it was you know, mutual commitment to make progress, desire to fulfill the commitments that the two leaders made at the Singapore summit. But nonetheless, it was most definitely an introductory meeting, not a uh, negotiation. Mm. And that that followed um, a, uh, you know, so just to kind of go back, you had the Singapore summit in June, 
Jocko. Yep. And then you had the secretary's visit in July um, where he uh, was matched up with Kim Young-chol. Uh, it was a tough meeting. I think mm -hmm. you will remember you know, the media blast that North Korea released as the secretary was flying home yeah. from Pyongyang. That was followed by the uh, uh, ASEAN summits in uh, that year. And Ryung-ho was at the ASEAN regional forum. And uh, But the secretary uh, had proposed a meeting, but the North Koreans uh, didn't reply. And so there was no meeting with Ryung-ho mm. uh, at that meeting, uh, at that uh, summit. Uh, and it was in Singapore, I believe. Again, that's where the uh, ASEAN summit was, was that year too. Um, so this was something of an advance that that, that Ryung-ho had agreed to meet in September, and it was the opening of my direct contact and conversation with the North Koreans. Okay, so tell us about Kim Yong-chol. So Kim Yong-chol was clearly in charge of the negotiations with the United States when I came in, and most of the communications below the leader level were between Secretary of State Pompeo and Kim Yong-chol, and uh, they had occasional communications, exchange of uh, primarily around uh, when we were going to get together, both at you know, it, it, it evolved a little bit, the terminology. So we had leader level, we had senior level, and we had working level. Mm -hmm. And so the secretary and Kim Young-chul were senior level. I was working level. Huh. Of course, the president and Chairman Kim were leader level. And so it was uh, you know, shortly after I got there, uh, we commenced an effort to put in place both uh, a senior level meeting, but also more importantly, a working level meeting to really you know, begin to, to dig into some of the issues that we needed to address between the two sides. Kim Young Chol was in charge of that. Mm -hmm. uh, he was—he's um, a tough cookie. Uh, oh. He's a, a tough customer, and uh, nothing was ever easy with him. But we had—you uh, know—we made it, we made our progress uh, here and there, a bit at a time. There's a unique photo op of you and Secretary Pompeo and Kim Young Chol taken, I believe, at the Dupont Circle Hotel in Washington. Talk us through how that happened and, and what that what the atmosphere was like at the time. There's a step in between that, that we've skipped over, mm -hmm. Jocko, which is that after the meeting with with uh, Ryung Ho, then uh, an invitation came uh, to the secretary to make a return return visit again to uh, Pyongyang, and so that was my first trip to Pyongyang. I accompanied huh. the secretary early in October, uh, just uh, two three weeks after the UN General Assembly. And so we spent we spent a, a full day at the uh, Pekwan Guest House with uh, Chairman Kim, and uh, and, and uh, that was my uh, that was my first meeting to North Korea, uh, first trip to North Korea. Uh, when we arrived, uh, the uh, the meeting was in the morning, ran probably about three hours, I'd say. There was a brief break, and then we had a, another meeting, which was a lunch meeting for approximately two hours afterwards, and uh, it was interesting when we arrived and that was the first time I'd met uh, Chairman Kim personally. Mm. And we, um, we, uh, we went into the meeting room and the, the meeting room, it was myself and the secretary of state and, uh, and Andy Kim, who's, uh, was head of the Korea mission center at, at the central intelligence agency. And one of my closest counterparts on the North Korea portfolio and a, and a trusted advisor to the secretary of state as well. Um, the three of us, uh, were on one side of the table on the other side of the table, was Chairman Kim, his sister Kim Yo-jong, and an interpreter. We went uh, about uh, three hours. Sec uh, Chairman Kim uh, seemed to intentionally exclude Kim Young-chol from that meeting. He wasn't mm. in that uh, small meeting. And there, were, there was some discussion about the tensions that had arose at the end of the summer and the cancellation of the previous visit and the desire 
to get things back on track. And so, you know, during the course of that approximately three-hour discussion, I covered a lot of issues, including possibility of a, a second summit meeting between the two leaders. The lunch was expanded out to include a couple more participants from each side, and and Kim Young Chol was at the lunch in the lunch discussion. But it seemed that there was a message being sent mm-hmm. that he was he was kept out of the room in the initial meeting, but then included later in the lunch. So that was that was the next event on the calendar, and that then uh, set the stage for us to make a um, make an invitation to Kim Young Chol to make a return visit to the United States. Uh, to be accompanied by his working level team so that we could commence the negotiations. And that was uh, that was agreed to with Chairman Kim in the in the meeting in October in Pyongyang. And um, you know another noteworthy thing is that in the small meeting in the expanded meeting, there were no representatives of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs present. It wow. was all UFD or International Department of the Korean Workers Party. There mm-hmm. was no no MFA representative to be seen during that day. Um, but in the meeting, Chairman Kim uh, turned to me and and he was quite welcoming, you know, uh, said that they looked forward to working with me and that they had uh, assigned a counterpart to me Mm -hmm. and that it would be um, Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, Che Sanyi. Right. But she was out of the country at the time, I think, wasn't she? Uh, Yes, I think she was in Russia. But he said that she would be assigned to be my counterpart, but not in her capacity as a official in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but in her personal capacity. It was an interesting nuance huh. that I caught. But I think it was, again, I go back to what I said um, earlier, that it's pretty clear that Kim Young-chol had singular ownership of the U.S. DPRK portfolio at that point. Mm. So that, you know, to go back to your question now, yeah. that was to um, lead into a return visit by Kim Young-chol to the United States and um, that visit was on again, off again a couple of times. Some of it was related to internal uh, disagreements uh, beyond, uh, you know, some of the sanctions that we issued and things like that caused the North Koreans to draw back. We went back and forth in that meeting and uh, and seemingly were falling into another period, I guess, really, from my viewpoint of view, the first period of, of a prolonged quiet from yep. North Korea. But some of the things happened that fall, Jocko, mm. just before Thanksgiving. My uh, member of my team who was in charge of maintaining communications with the North Korean mission to the United Nations received a call on a Saturday night, asked him to be present on Sunday for a meeting, which was a short notice, but... That seems irregular. Not, but not untypical for okay. how events happen with North Korea. And generally, those calls will come in the very wee hours because the direction comes from Pyongyang to the ambassador, and the ambassador is compelled or is uh, feels the need to reach out immediately. So those calls will generally come... <laughs> Uh, in the middle of the night. And so my uh, colleague called me, of course, and, and woke me yeah. to tell me, and we made it happen. He went up and he he walked into the North Korean mission on a Sunday morning mm. and was duly informed that a United States citizen had crossed illegally crossed the border into North Korea and was being detained. And the reason for the meeting was that the North Koreans had discerned, ascertained that he was not of any threat to North Korea. Mm-hmm. And that they wanted to work with us to make the arrangements to quickly release him and return him to his home. And, you know, we went just in the course of that phone briefing that I got in the immediate aftermath of the meeting, I went from thinking, oh, my God, here we go again, to, you know, my goodness, something's different here. Right. This was definitely not par for the course, was it? No. And a year later, uh, excuse me, a year prior, you could have imagined a very, very different circumstance. Turns out the person 
without going into much detail about the individuals, had some patterns of behavior that were slightly off and odd. Right. And, and the North Koreans were able to discern in the course of their interrogation of him, which transpired for weeks. We didn't know. Mm -hmm. We had no idea this person uh, was in you know, was a private U.S. citizen, one, uh, was in China, uh, honestly had overstayed the visa in China, yeah. was there even in China illegally, and then had walked across the border, uh, walked across the river into North Korea and was immediately arrested by the border guards, claimed to be uh, there as a... Um, representative of the Central Intelligence Agency oh boy. when the border guard was arresting him. And so you can imagine, yeah. but you know, it turned out to be something far more benign. And after a period of interrogation, but no mistreatment, mm -hmm. uh, we were very careful to make uh, after the fact inquiries, the individual was released. And oh. thanks to the good, in, good, good offices of our um, Swedish counterparts who mm. serve as the, what's called the protecting power for the United States in North Korea, he was accompanied by a North Korean diplomat onto a plane. Um, the Chinese were incredibly gracious in allowing him to pass through mm. Beijing airport, despite him having violated their laws and their right. visa rules. The Chinese facilitated the rapid transfer, and he was back with his family by uh, Thanksgiving. Mm. And this was not an inconsequential development, as you can imagine, in, yep. in, particularly if you picture the year that we were just coming out of and, a year later in November, a year prior in the fall of 2017, you know, we were talking about little rocket man and fire and fury. Yeah. So we'd come a long way. We, we still couldn't get on the same page regarding a meeting. And then uh, in Seoul, just before Christmas, I was in Seoul and the United States uh, unilaterally made some gestures related to restrictions on, in particular on travel of uh, U.S. humanitarian aid workers mm. to North Korea. Um, it was a public statement. Uh, we, we issued it at the uh, airport in Incheon upon arrival. And it was intended to reflect the constructive way that they had dealt with this American who had wandered into the country. It wasn't exactly a quid pro quo, but mm -hmm. it gave us the confidence that we were shifting into new ground where we could be a little bit more confident that U.S. aid workers, for example, could travel in and out of North Korea without fear of being held or molest, molested in any way. And that set in sequence a conversation that led to Kim Jong-chol's visit to Washington, D.C. early in uh, 2019. Uh -huh. So there was quite a bit between your question and the, uh, the meeting in October in uh, Pyongyang. Yes. Uh, but to get back to the photo of there at the uh, DuPont Circle Hotel, uh, it all looks very jolly. But as you say, I mean, Kim Jong-chol was not an easy man to, uh, to talk with. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot more uh, to that meeting. So yes. uh, one, uh, one oddity. We had unsuccessfully been trying to schedule that meeting really since we left Pyongyang in October. Mm. It was on again, off again a couple of times, but we just couldn't get it in sync. And then on a Saturday morning, gosh, I don't have a calendar in front of me, but somewhere around January 7th, January 8th, uh, I got a call from uh, some of my government counterparts that they'd received a commitment by Kim Young-chol that he was prepared to come uh, to the United States the, uh, in uh, mid-January and gave us the date. Wednesday night, they would stay through Saturday. And so, uh, you know, finally we got this on the schedule and, you know, our desire was that this bring the working level team mm -hmm. for the North Koreans. And, and so we, uh, we were getting ready to quickly make arrangements that Saturday morning. There was a flurry of calls about an hour after that call. I got a second call from my Swedish counterpart, the Swedish special envoy for North Korea, confirming a, uh, a discussion that had been, raised but on the back burner as an alternative to having a visit to the United States 
where we might uh, meet in a neutral location like Sweden. Mm. And so an hour after the first call, I get a second call that says North Koreans are prepared to meet with you in Sweden, exact same dates as the meeting in Washington, D.C. And uh, that was a real head scratcher for us. Yeah. And by the way, the the meeting in Washington was to be led by Kim Jong-chol and the meeting in Stockholm was to be led by Chisungi. I, you know, we'll have to wait till the North Korean archives are opened to understand what the thinking was. It couldn't have been accidental. Wow. There's no possible way that two different parts of the North Korean government would be proposing uh, two meetings in two different continents mm. with uh, the same uh, set of Americans. And so um, it put us in a bit of a conundrum. Right. Did, did you have to choose who to meet and where? Or, or how, how did you well, we, go with that? We split the baby. So <laughs> we, um, I, I welcomed... Uh, Kim Young-chol at Dulles Airport when he arrived on Wednesday night. Mm. We had a full day of meetings on that Thursday, including with uh, a meeting, a morning meeting with the Secretary of State, a midday meeting with the President, a lunch to follow, and then a, a dinner meeting on Thursday evening. And then, um, you know, I've got my dates wrong. He came in on Thursday and these meetings were on Friday, I think, because then um, the meetings wrapped up uh, on Friday. Uh, the luncheon ended about three o'clock and then there was nothing on the meeting nothing on the schedule until dinner time. And then mm. on Saturday, the North Korean delegation was open in the morning and they were leaving midday on, I think, the Air China, uh, China Airways flight uh, to uh, Beijing. Mm-hmm. And so that picture you saw that you, uh, around, around which your question was posed, yeah. was after the, uh, either after the luncheon or after the, the morning meeting at the, at the DuPont Circle Hotel, mm. where we uh, we did a you know obligatory pose for the press, just to show the uh, the meeting, um, but that was in the middle of uh, a day and a half of, of meetings. Shortly uh, after that, I got on a plane that night for Stockholm, and I arrived in Stockholm, and by agreement was prepared to meet with the other North Korean delegation all day Saturday and all day Sunday, and so um, I did both. Gosh, I left town before the North Koreans left. So my colleagues at the department hosted them and then delivered them to the airport on Saturday. I was already in Stockholm by the time they woke up. And um, but you know, in Stockholm, the meeting that happened, you know, in the end didn't happen in parallel, but sequentially, it was a very different meeting. The the meeting in Washington was again a substantive discussion, and and I can come back to that to, to give you a little more detail on that, Jocko, if you'd mm. like. The meeting in Stockholm was more of a track 1.5 type meeting, where the um, the, it was hosted incredibly ably by the Swedish government, and in particular, the host was the Stockholm Institute for Peace Research, CIPRI. And CIPRI brought in panels of experts on various issues, on disarmament, on um, on confidence-building measures, on economic transformation within differing systemic approaches to the economy. They had a series of panels that uh, we participated in during the two days. It was a delegation from South Korea, led by my uh, counterpart and good friend, Ambassador uh, uh, Lee Dohun. Che Sani led the North Korean delegation, and, and I led the U.S. delegation. We each had about five people in our group, and there was you know, meals together, but you know there was also some separation. The North Korean delegation was careful, but it was a chance to indirectly discuss with experts some of the issues that we were going to need to make progress on to really advance things on the Korean Peninsula. It was a chance to have that discussion with a uh, with a moderator instead of with each other, you know, so create the, the Swedes created a very 
safe environment to have mm. these discussions and quite honestly the need for a safe environment wasn't our need it, it was the other parties that had to exercise some caution even the south koreans had to yeah. have some some caution so uh, so the meetings happened sequentially but they were very different than the the substance of the discussions that transpired in in washington dc what i'm curious about is did each group of north koreans know that you had just met or were just about to meet the other i have ample reason to believe the answer to that is yes Okay, but you didn't say to uh, to Kim Young Chol, uh, listen, I got to go early because I'm I'm dashing off to Stockholm to meet uh, Che Sun Hee. I'd rather um, I'd rather be a slightly discreet about okay. with whom I discussed what. But yes. Suffice it to say that I'm highly confident that everybody knew what was happening here. Right. Except me, frankly. Except <laughs> me, because I, to this day, uh, I have uh, someday I'll get an answer. I'm yeah. confident. It, it, but anyway, the um, so there's another detail that I should I should mention you, Jacko, if I can, about the visit from Kim Young Chol. Please. So he arrived that evening at the airport at Dulles Airport. We welcomed them into the VIP lounge as they were their passports were being processed and the motorcade was being organized. Brief, you know, sit down and chat yeah. in the uh, in the VIP lounge. And the, both delegate, well, the North Korean delegation was there. I was there with a couple of my team, but not my entire team. And Kim Young Chol, and during the course of the chit chat, introduced me to a, another gentleman. Yeah, you know, there was just a, several new faces that I'd never met before, and he just kind of was introducing the delegation. And and he introduced this uh, this gentleman, and then kind of went on to the next person, the next person, some of whom I I had met by then. Mm-hmm. And then we sat down, and he and I uh, have a chat. It was one of my team and one of his team sat down. And it was one of the people he introduced me to. And as I was sitting there talking to him it started to, the introduction started to register, you know, it was a frantic environment, a lot of people yes. in the room. And I just, I started to absorb what he had said. And he'd introduced the, the gentleman with him as the newly appointed special representative for the United States of America. Oh, And it quickly dawned on me, this is my counterpart. But they keep in mind, my whole mindset yeah. since October, since right. when Chairman Kim said, Chesani will be your counterpart. Yes. So I'd built my whole expectation. And frankly, uh, a lot of the work we were doing was around the expectation that Vice Minister Chase and me was was my counterpart. And so it slipped past me when he first introduced Kim Hyuk Chol. Kim Hyuk Chol, right, who had previously been the ambassador to Madrid, had he not? Yeah, and had been expelled when uh, the diplomatic uh, isolation campaign was really underway in the face of the provocations in 2017. So it dawned on me. So I, having absorbed this, I began to uh, speak uh, you know, where I could with him as well, mm. and had a fair amount of uh, interchange with him during the weekend. His protocol on both sides were were setting up the pairings. They were, it was clear, you know, it became abundantly clear the next day when we actually were sitting in the formal meetings yeah. that we had um, Secretary Pompeo and Kim Young-chol, and then my, uh, myself and, and Kim Hyuk-chol were the next pairing at events, at meetings, at dinners, et cetera, or lunches. And so, um, that was the start of our first working level negotiation. We agreed at the uh, lunch on Friday that we would, since we were all there, we would kick off the working level discussions. Mm, and right. so I proposed that we meet Friday afternoon, that I said that I could be available till approximately 6.30 p.m. Right. When I literally had to dash to the airport to get on the plane. Yes. And they proposed Saturday morning when they were open. Oh, God. And, and I said, I can't do that. Right. And in the end, uh, with a little bit of back and forth, it became clear to me that they knew where I was going. Ah. And we did hold that meeting. That was our first working level meeting on that Friday. We framed out a couple of things. We, we framed out some of the key issues. 
some uh, already agreed to things that we should move quickly to take opportunity with, including um, the deployment of uh, teams to Tung uh, Ri. Mm. And also, as the North Koreans had uh, told President Moon in Pyongyang during his summit that fall, and also Chairman Kim had reiterated with, with Secretary Pompeo in October of that year, uh, access to Pungay-ri as well. And so we talked about moving quickly on those priorities. We talked about the importance of getting together in person and building momentum. And an informal invitation was extended to us to come to Pyongyang. And then um, Kim Hyuk Chol later, a couple of weeks after the meeting, confirmed that invitation formally, uh, which uh, set up our, our first visit uh, with the working level team to Hanoi in uh, early February. Tell us a little bit about the personality of Kim Hyuk Chol. How did he seem? I almost wonder if he wasn't selected because he was had a lot of similarities uh, to me. Hmm. He had a very even demeanor. He was um, he spoke English well. Yeah, he was. Uh, you know, uh, Jacko, with one slight exception, I never got the wire brush treatment from the North Koreans. I never got the litany of hmm. of American perfidy, perfidy and sins that. Uh, and the misery that we've inflicted upon unfairly upon North Korea, I never got that. And Kim Hyuk Chol wasn't the kind of person who was ever going to deliver that kind of diatribe in a meeting, which I've heard of from counterparts who have been the recipients of this. But yeah. there was just we never dealt with any of that business, with the possible exception of our very very last encounter. But even then, it was a mild version of it. But um, he was pragmatic, constructive, and you know, it's a very different system. So we can't mirror, we can't do any mirroring here to say, oh, wow, this is a reasonable guy. Mm -hmm. and we'll be able to work with him. It, it doesn't work that way in their system. You, you're not talking to the individual ever. You're talking to the system and you're in yeah. the system is directed by the leader. And so one has to be careful not to, you know, emotionally try to form some attachment, which is not only impossible, right. but quite frankly, unfair and even dangerous for a North Korean counterpart. But he was constructive. He was. It was clear that he was going to be the person, at least for the foreseeable future, we were going to be working with. And uh, we were encouraged and ready to go. Sensitive question here. Do you have any reason to believe that he was executed after Hanoi, as was rumored? I don't know. Okay. Now, Che Sun-hee, uh, I've heard that she can be quite hard to talk to as well. So how, how was she with you? Very good. We had a constructive discussion. She made clear, very similar to how Ryung Ho had made clear in September the year before, mm -hmm. that she was not in charge of the North Korean negotiations. Mm. It was, you know, it was clear to us that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was inputting into it yeah. and advising her. But, you know, she confirmed what we had been told in Washington, that Kim Hyuk Chol was my counterpart. Right. And so we weren't really negotiating. It was really honestly like a track 1.5 dialogue mm. where there was discussions, some sidebars, nothing, nothing that would resemble a negotiation, but an opportunity for both sides to message uh, their intent, their cooperation. And uh, it was in that sense, I thought both visits were incredibly successful and it, not in so much in their delivery of an outcome, because one has to be careful meetings for the sake of meetings, even very pleasant meetings in and of themselves aren't going to move the ball forward. Mm. But as the antecedent for what we wanted to do, in both cases, I was quite encouraged. Uh, but it was clear still at that point that the United Front Department was in charge. Kim, uh, when Kim Hyuk Chol was introduced to me, yeah. um, it was made clear that he had been attached 
to the uh, State Affairs Commission that he was not serving as a Ministry of Foreign Affairs representative. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, because he had so he had been an ambassador, but he's now sort of attached to the State Affairs Committee in his uh, capacity of talking to you. Is that right? Exactly. Right. And um, and then in the uh, aftermath of that visit, the North Koreans uh, released uh, in either Nodong Shinmun or KCNA, they released a photo of a after action briefing to Chairman Kim mm. from the uh, from the visit to Washington D.C. And seated on the sofa in his off uh, in his office were uh, in Chairman Kim's office were Kim Young Chol, Kim Hyuk Chol, and uh, Pak Chol from the United Front Department. And so uh, all the imagery that was coming out of North Korea, all the all the visuals that were coming out of North Korea, and all, all of the messages in our meetings suggested to us you know, unequivocally that the United Front Department was leading this uh, diplomatic initiative with the United States. Right. Uh, now, you, you said earlier that uh, on your first visit to uh, Pyongyang, you met with uh, Chairman Kim Jong-un and also his sister, Kim Yo-jong. Um, tell us a little bit about both of their personalities. Uh, Chairman, uh, Chairman Kim is uh, very confident. In these meetings, he does all of the talking. Mm. I don't recall being in a meeting with him, of the three meetings that I was present uh, with him, where anyone else would be brought into the conversation. On our side, that would happen but not on, the, not on the North Korean side. He had a stack of talking points on the table aside from where he was sitting, mm -hmm. but um, I, I don't recollect him ever referring to them. He conducted the whole meeting from his point of view and his, his knowledge that he had. He was pragmatic, but uh, also wanted to be sure his point of view, he was insistent that his point of view be registered. Um, you, you couldn't give uh, short shrift when he... Uh, you know, when we were talking about summit locations, there was uh, some preferred locations on each side, and Chairman Kim wanted to be sure we gave cl uh, closest possible consideration to his preferences. In the end, it was very agreeable where we settled on. Mm -hmm. I think Vietnam was uh, was high on the list of both sides. The in the end, it was a question of Da Nang or or Hanoi, yeah. uh, but we settled on Hanoi, and we we had suspected we didn't know for sure, but we had suspected that Chairman Kim would be taking the train. Mm. And we had done the done the math on train travel to various locations in Southeast Asia and the places that he could get, you know, directly on land. And even Hanoi is, a, I don't know, maybe another eight ten hours short of Danang. So right. there there are reasons why the North Koreans were uh, were in the end uh, quite intent on Hanoi, and that was perfectly acceptable to us. We wanted to do it in, in Vietnam, and the Vietnamese were fantastic mm -hmm. hosts. But uh, the train travel was one of the limiting factors. And, and he seems to only, at least during my two and a half years, he only wanted to travel by train. He came to the Singapore summit on, a, on an aircraft. But after that, it was all, all trains. So uh, uh, anyway, I don't know if that answered your question. But... Well, that gives a sense of, uh, I get a sense of him now. Now, what about uh, Kim Yo-jong, the sister? She uh, is, it's just as you see in the um, video footage mm -hmm. that, you might have seen around meetings, Chairman Kim. She's always present, yeah. but she's got something that I think skilled hands in Washington, D.C., at least ones who understand a certain role that they play in the halls of power have developed, which is to kind of try to stay out of the camera. Sometimes you really have to squint mm. to catch a glimpse of, of Kim Yo-jong in a camera because you just see her you know, passing by fleetingly in the, in the back. Yes. Um, but she's always present, but never, never seeks to impose her presence the filial relationship between her and her brother is is clear, mm -hmm. but she's de deferential 
uh, to Chairman Kim and uh, in, in that meeting that we were at uh, and in the luncheon, uh, well, in the meeting, she, she didn't interject at all. And mm -hmm. then in the luncheon, the following in Pyongyang in October, she brought in, she was brought into the conversation as was I and a couple others, but largely by invitation by Chairman Kim oh. or Secretary Pompeo. Yeah. But, um, you know, she's not a, she's not a dominating presence. She's obviously someone with in, incredible influence. Mm -hmm. And, um, and she also was on uh, very familiar terms with Kim Young-chol, it was clear to me. Now, uh, in late 2014, I'm going back in time a bit here, uh, Director of National Intelligence James Clapper went to Pyongyang to secure the release of two American citizens. And after his return, he talked to the Wall Street Journal about what he saw as a generational split, the older Koreans being more forceful in their anti-American rhetoric and hard in negotiations, and a younger generation that he saw as more open to dialogue and engagement. And I'd, I'd really like to ask you, do you agree with that assessment or do you see some kind of a, uh, a hardliner versus moderate split? No, I didn't, I never did. And I, I fought against uh, what I think is an American tendency to see that, mm. you know, the, uh, the caricature, this is the uh, elusive search for the Iranian moderate over, <laughs> over decades. And, um, and, and I think one has to be very careful I think that is us imposing what we hope would hope would be the case. We had we felt the same way about Bashar Assad in Syria. Mm. That when you know this guy who was trained as an ophthalmologist, who was married to a British Syrian woman, yeah. surely yeah. would be a liberalizer in Syria. And he's turned out to be the bloodiest dictator, probably, and that's really saying something, mm. the bloodiest dictator in modern history in the Middle East. And and so with the I fought against seeing that. I never did really see it anyway, Jocko. But I also saw a very different paradigm. I saw the the split, if you will, between a desire to cling to a system of a dynastic dictatorship mm -hmm. versus the real world pressures facing North Korea. And that's the Scylla and Charybdis, uh, so to speak, that I tried to... I felt I was sailing between not not uh, older conservatives versus younger reformers. And quite frankly, you know, there's another thing that we have to be very careful of, which is once we accepted a paradigm like uh, General Clapper described, then we also uh, have to be, the next thing is you start posturing yourself according to that. So you start trying to reach out to the so-called reformer mm -hmm. and, and marginalizing conservative. My view was that the North Koreans had to pick who, who was leading their diplomacy and whoever they picked, we had to engage with. And if we tried to manipulate that or maneuver around that in any way, more likely than not, we would screw it up. And on top of that, you know, who's to say that a, a hardened, tough, uh, old general like Kim Young-chol, once you struck a deal with him, might not be exactly the kind of person able to enforce it mm -hmm. and drive it through the system versus a a so-called liberalizer or you know somebody with diplomatic finesse who could present an agreement to the regime that gets eaten alive because there's no muscle behind it and so we stuck to our knitting we figured out who was on our side and we let them figure out who was on their side and we tried hard not to maneuver around perceived or real divisions that there might be now, I'm getting ahead of myself chronologically, but it does seem the right time to uh, to bring this in, um, given what you just said. 
in November 2019, you asked for Chess on Heat to be made your negotiating partner again uh, when you were promoted to the Deputy Secretary of State position. Was that about levels and, and protocol or because you had better um, communication with her? Uh, neither. Actually, we were simply uh, tracking the shifting sands uh, inside Pyongyang itself. So I've been uh, very clear in uh, tracking the chronology up till now, Jacko, mm -hmm. that there was abundant evidence reinforced by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that United Front Department uh, was in charge and singularly, singularly in charge of running the North Korea policy, even if others inside the regime were advising Chairman Kim, but that changed in, in Hanoi. That changed after Hanoi. And so there was a shift. And the it was clear in the aftermath of the Hanoi summit that the MFA had become ascendant. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I want to go to uh, Stanford. Uh, I reread a couple of times, maybe three times, the transcript of your famous January 31st, 2018, sorry, 2019 speech at Stanford University just before the Hanoi, you know, a few weeks before the, uh, the Hanoi summit. It makes for somber rereading now. We're going to put the link up in the show notes, and I recommend all our listeners to go and have a look at it. Have you gone back and read that speech since you gave it? I have. How do you feel about it now? I'd give that speech today. Was it the high point in the hopes of moving USDPRK relations forward? Well, you know, so I've given you a bit of a chronology. Yeah. I think you get a sense of the momentum that was starting to pick up. That speech uh, was was a signaling uh, speech, and I, I have to say that I'm uh, deeply, uh, deeply uh, grateful to Stanford University uh, and to the uh, Spogli Center for having provided me that platform. Uh, Jiwook Shin, who's an outstanding Korea expert, Bob Carlin, mm. Sig Hacker, a number of others who served. Uh, Andy Kim was actually at that point a fellow at Stanford too. They served not only as a uh, as a kitchen cabinet of outside advisors, but they gave me a platform to give that speech outside the political hothouse of Washington. Mm. Because, you know, we're talking exclusively about North Korea diplomacy, but I'm operating in a context of deep division in the capital policy battles on a daily basis. You know, we're trying to keep Congress uh, along and the executive branch and interagency process, and so. To be able to remove from Washington, D.C. and deliver a speech like that in, at Stanford was an opportunity to speak without all the other distractions present. And uh, it turns out that Palo Alto is just far enough from Washington, D.C. to escape that, yeah. uh, that political hothouse. The, uh, the speech was, without question, framed in the context of the meetings that I described to you that had happened in the run-up to that. Yeah including both Washington and um, in Stockholm, but uh, some of the other discussions as well, some of which, um, quite frankly, I'm not at liberty to disclose. Mm. And the uh, so what I wanted to do was frame our larger initiative, building off of what the president's direction was. Um, you know, it was structured off of the Singapore joint statement, and it was intended to be a, a way to get to our end state in the four areas that the leaders had agreed to in Singapore in a way that was mutually beneficial, but also built confidence on both sides. And so that was the goal. And that, that really was the construct around which we framed our engagement with the North Koreans really until, until the end. And um, uh, there was an additional iteration that came in Hanoi, in the, at least in the working level meetings, mm -hmm. 
before the leader summit, but uh, that pretty much was the construct for our diplomacy that we uh, stuck with uh, through the, uh, the remaining year and a half, two years. Now, after the speech, you were interviewed uh, by Bob Cullen, who you just mentioned, and who, of course, also has been on the podcast before. Uh, it, sound, it does sound to some that some of uh, Bob's ideas are present in the Stanford speech. So was that the writing of the speech a group effort? And if so, who are some of the influential voices we can hear in it? So uh, I wrote the speech and um, I had, with a very able team, plenty of great inputs from my State Department team, particularly uh, Alex Wong, mm. who um, my deputy, who understood the importance of that moment. And the first, th these were, uh, I, uh, these were my first major public remarks on North Korea. Short, uh, except for the statement that I read in the airport in Incheon, mm. uh, Incheon Airport, just before Christmas in 2018. This was my first major set of public remarks. But, and this is the big but, yeah. I cannot exaggerate how generous my predecessors as uh, North Korean negotiators, longtime friends, people going back to Bob Gallucci, mm. um, Wendy Sherman, but Bob Carlin, Sig Hecker, um, Joe Triani. Triani. Yeah. Gosh, it's like, you know, thank yous at a dinner. Uh, there are so many people who were so generous with their time, Jacko, oh. to help me think through every dimension of this. But then it was our time, my time, my team's time to sit back and say, you know, what is our approach? And so it, I, I credit others with having shared innumerable uh, ideas and, and experience with their experiences with us. But in the end, that was our thinking. And it was anchored, it was anchored in, in the president's direction and what the president wanted to do. And I, I, as I look at it again, I looked at it just a few weeks ago in advance of a private discussion I had on North Korea, I would say that I think it holds up very well. We did not take lightly uh, moments where we where I spoke in public. Yeah. It was very, very well prepared, and it was always with a purpose. And, and the reason why is we, we did an early assessment of the strengths and weaknesses in, in going into engagement with North Korea. And undoubtedly, the North Korean strength is their message discipline. There's not a word mm. uttered that isn't connected all the way to the top. And, and that can be frustrating mm -hmm. because it leads to you know, no flexibility by your interlocutor, but there is total message discipline. And, and if the negotiator is saying it, it's what's being also parroted in No Dong Shin Moon or it's being reflected in ministry statements, message discipline. What the North Korean system lacks is agility. Mm -hmm. Their system doesn't allow for thinking on the fly, quite frankly, as I experienced in Hanoi, even at the leader level. Our systemic weakness is our communications. We're a large and sprawling democracy with independent branches of government. We have a free media. We have think tank experts. We have, we have you know, people of every possible perspective who are published in public commentary and op-eds and so on. And for the North Koreans, um, I think, uh, I don't want to accuse them of lacking in sophistication, but I think there's a tendency a mirroring tendency, a word I've used before, that they look at us, our system, not unlike theirs. Mm. And so they would complain about in a meeting about a New York Times editorial or a uh, think tank report or a statement by a member of Congress. And, you know, in our system, it's, I, I can't control that. It was hard enough to control what the executive branch was saying sure. and doing on North Korea, much less the large sprawling democracy that we live in. But our strength, Jocko, our offsetting strength is our agility. We can sit at a 
at the negotiating table, we can see a seam and we can explore, well, maybe we go there mm-hmm. or maybe we try that. You know, those are our respective strengths and weaknesses, but they also create a lot of the stalemate that we face because we're agile, but undisciplined in communication. They're disciplined in communication, but immobile. The speech in Stanford was intended to send a message to North Korea. And based upon the reception we received when we arrived in Pyongyang about a week later, I think the message was heard. So you're certain that they they heard or they read the speech? Certain. Yeah. Was Secretary of State Pompeo fully aware with what you were going to say at Stanford before you said it? Yep. And he was on board with it afterwards? He was. In John Bolton's book, he talks about how your speech at Stanford, quote, only increased his concern that Hanoi would become a debacle because he feared that President Trump was going to follow the action for action formula demanded by North Korea. He also accused accused the State Department of being uncooperative and uncommunicative on what you were telling the North Koreans. How do you respond to that? Yeah, we were we were completely transparent. In fact, I had a, a trusted senior member of the National Security Council staff who was a permanent member of my team, uh, Allison Hooker, who is a phenomenal expert, uh, has become a friend and will be for life. And that we had absolute total connectivity with the National Security Council. We had numerous principals and deputies meetings mm. in the course of the fall and, and uh, into the uh, new year, including right prior to the uh, to the summit. And every iota of what we brought to the table with the North Koreans in Hanoi is reflected in deputies committee and principal committees, summaries of conclusions. There's, there's absolutely no, dis- no discrepancy from what was the president's policy, the interagency policy, or the secretary of state or my spoken descriptions of our policy. I think, you know, I can't speak for John, but I think, you know, the truth is John just was unhappy about any diplomacy with North Korea. Um, and he, he harbored a hope that this wouldn't go forward, but he didn't have an alternative. And in any event, he was entirely out of lockstep with the president, if that was the case. So this is one case where America did have a message discipline. Uh, well, you know, just because everything's agreed, uh, as, uh, as John Bolton's book indicates, just because everything was agreed <laughs> doesn't mean everybody agrees to, to use the agreed talking points. So. Yeah. Um, you know, John was John was uh, prone to his 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 own approach, and I don't think he was trusting of anybody else. So, I mean, this is is a, a I think a challenge he's had uh, throughout his career is that he he operates from a base assumption that everybody else is out to betray the country. Mm. I mean, the fact of the matter is, we had close partnership with the NSC staff. They were they were excellent, uh, and and Allison uh, served as 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 my uh, deputy negotiator. Alex Wong was my deputy in the department, but but uh, Allison Hooker served as my number two throughout and was involved with every single discussion we had. Just on why North Korea has nuclear weapons, do you believe that uh, do you believe North Korea, when it says that its nuclear weapons program is just a, a deterrent, the ultimate form of defense against much stronger neighbors, including the USA? I don't think that's there's any evidence to suggest anymore that that's the overwhelming reason. I think it's a it's I think it's deeply ingrained in the national identity and the national ideology. It's a sign of North Korea's willingness and ability to go it alone. It's a technological achievement that I think um, the North Korean regime is is quite proud of. And uh, and so I think multifaceted mm. at some level, um, you know, going back to the late 1980s when the first evidence of North Korea's nuclear weapons ambitions uh, began to appear. 
I think it, it, it certainly could have been driven more by uh, security concerns, but there's no evidence to support the logic on the Korean Peninsula as it is today that those weapons are necessary or seen as necessary to protect North Korea. Nobody's intending to invade North Korea. That's not what it's about anymore. China, there's a perpetual debate on how much leverage China really has on North Korea. Uh, what's your sense of it? I found the Chinese to be uh, extraordinarily helpful. And I think they uh, leverage is, is, a, is a big word, but um, they certainly have influence and they have relationships with North Koreans in North Korea. Mm. You know the history, Jacko. Yes. You know that um, it was a pretty troubled relationship in the years following Chairman Kim's ascendance to uh, leadership. Mm. The uh, It even seemed that there were some, you know, with the Jung Sun Tak uh, killing oh, yeah. and execution and other steps, it seemed there was an effort really to, to create some separation from China. It, it was clearly no love lost between President Xi Jinping, uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping, and, uh, and Chairman Kim. Um, but that began to soften in the context of other diplomatic developments and in the Chinese. Chinese really did become more of a player. In 2017, China was uh, cl closely cooperated with the United States, in particular on the imposition of draconian sanctions mm. in the UN Security Council. Um, in 2018, my counterpart in China, who's now their ambassador to Tokyo, he was an excellent partner. Uh, we worked closely. We uh, we did as much as possible, tried to stay aligned. But as U.S.-China relations began to deteriorate, that level of cooperation began to dissipate as well. You know, the Chinese approach, in my view, is, is kind of a Goldilocks approach. The, the Chinese would be more than happy for the status quo to be sustained. Yeah. But when North Korean provocations or external events create the possibility of of tensions over uh, boiling over on the peninsula, the Chinese get nervous and step in and have to have to calibrate their policy. You know, one of the things that I've reflected on, Jacko, is that we were successful at least in stabilizing events on the Korean Peninsula between President Trump's efforts, Chairman Kim's efforts, President Moon's efforts, between the efforts of the teams working in the three countries. It's a very different Korean Peninsula in a lot of ways, but in, in terms of just you know, would you expect things to erupt overnight? You know, we're a long way away from how people felt in 2017. But I, I, as I've reflected on that, I've wondered, were, were we in some ways victims of our success in doing that in, in this way, that, that we have restored in Beijing a sense of calm and stability on the Korean Peninsula? And possibly, just possibly, this has led the Chinese to ease their efforts to change the status quo because it's moved back towards the stability that they see. Mm. You know, they don't, they, they don't want North Korea to, they don't want the Korean Peninsula to erupt in warfare. They don't want to see the catastrophic collapse of the, of the North Korean government. But if things are just kind of muddling along and they can provide enough aid to, to keep North Korea alive, but maybe not thriving. And if North Korea uh, avoids kind of provocations, it could lead to, you know, external tensions, then, uh, then China doesn't really feel so much in a hurry to move things along. And I'm afraid that's kind of my sense of where things are now, but it's also complicated by the, the deterioration we've seen in the U.S.-China relationship over the last couple of years as well. Did you get any sense from the North Koreans how they felt about China on, on a sort of a visceral, emotional level? Yeah, I think they were very clear that they, were, uh, they viewed themselves uh, independent of China. 
and uh, and very reluctant. And here I'm perhaps even understating how determined they were to remain independent of China, mm. but they were clear in, in a few meetings uh, that that was the case. And I think I think internally in North Korea, it would be quite politically dangerous to uh, move in a policy direction uh, to become dependent upon China. And, and I think I think that's a I think that's a real challenge for North Korea, particularly at this moment when circumstances are so dire in in North Korea, because the Juche philosophy isn't just about everybody but China. It's about China too. Yeah. And North Korea is right now, I think, very much at risk of being seen as essentially a dependent of China, which I think in many ways when it comes to food and some of the uh, oil trade, it, it clearly is. Now, turning to uh, to Hanoi, which is obviously a, a very important topic, there was what well, uh, John Bolton writes again in his book that there was a draft joint statement uh, that he says that you put on the table during a preparatory meeting with the North Koreans without getting clearance in advance. How do you remember that? Yeah, so again, as I said, we, we had a thorough set of interagency meetings in advance of the summit to lay out the parameters of what we uh, would be prepared to propose. And, and everything we did in Hanoi was, I went back afterwards because uh, John made that assertion even before he wrote his book, which is, uh, as far as I can tell, he was actually writing his book at the at the time <laughs> because it, it, with the speed which came out, I, I have to assume that this book was being written uh, during those months, the uh, which is extraordinary in its own uh, in, in its own mm. right. But what uh, what I would say is, and I did go back and I looked I looked again at the interagency policy conclusions and and everything we had uh, on the table in Hanoi was fully consistent with that everything. But we had a different challenge in Hanoi, and uh, it was this: we had we had four lines of effort built around the four commitments that the two leaders made at the Singapore summit. The four lines of effort identified, four agreements identified in the Singapore Singapore Joint Statement, mm -hmm. and we added a fifth. I mentioned this a moment ago that we added a dimension. We added a fifth internally. We called it a brighter future, but but we called it with the North Koreans economic cooperation. And um, one has to be careful saying there's a brighter future in North Korea because that would presume that it's not very bright present. Right. And um, so one, one has to be sensitive about these things. But in any event, that was the point. The, the leaving aside the nomenclature, the point was to chart a, um, a, a pathway for economic cooperation that moved um, after, but uh, uh, in parallel with, um, with uh, some of the other things we were trying to do. And so you know, the Singapore joint statement had a transformation of relations on the Korean Peninsula and hostilities, denuclearization, and the recovery of, of remains. What we did under that rubric or under that framework is we developed detailed roadmaps from where we were at the moment to the end state that we were seeking in each of these areas, and then worked together with our North Korean counterparts on, on what were some initiatives and what were the steps, what were the way stations along that roadmap to get to the ultimate goal. And so on transforming relations, the end state would be full normalization of relations. None of these were expected to happen overnight, incidentally, and some of them depended upon um, you know, antecedent steps happening and working out. But you know, something like that, Jocko, you would start with the establishment of, of liaison or intersection yeah. presence in each other's capitals. You ultimately you would move down the road to to something that could lead to full normalization on, on uh, you know, ending hostilities on the Korean Peninsula. 
the end state is a permanent peace treaty to supplant the uh, armistice, uh, you know, a permanent peace treaty with a resettlement of all issues, including, you know, uh, uh, delimiting uh, the West Sea and, and border issues and, and other, other issues that would need to be resolved mm -hmm. as part of a settlement of a war that ended, unless we forget, 65 plus years ago. Yeah. Um, the, um, and, and on denuclearization, we had a vision for the same on, on um, recovery of remains. It was a narrow issue and it was a last minute ad at the Singapore summit because it was a huge and important priority mm. for the United States. But we broadened that out to be humanitarian initiatives, which were largely seen as unilateral. What could each side do that would, yeah. would build goodwill and support? So for us, it would be, um, we would be looking for family reunions, both for South Koreans as well as for right. Korean Americans who never had the opportunity. We'd have, um, uh, we we uh, we talked about uh, cooperation on medical and and, uh, and and agricultural production, you know, things that would classically be seen as humanitarian aid or development, but crafted in a very different way to respect North Korean sensitivities. But things that could be done outside, uh, but in parallel with with the other initiatives, and then economic cooperation would move towards uh, an international, at some point, an international conference, perhaps a donors conference, perhaps. Uh, World Bank or IMF membership, all the way culminating to, you know, North Korea being uh, part of integ integrated more fully into the global economy. You know, again, I, 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 I want to be emphasize that none of this was going to happen overnight. No. But we we're looking for what what's the end state and then a roadmap to get there. So uh, going back to denuclearization, the challenge we had at the working level negotiations is we and by the way, our North Korean counterparts had plenty of creative ideas and and how to put the way stations in each of these each of these. Uh, uh, roadmaps towards an ultimate goal. But when it got to denuclearization, our North Korean counterparts neither had the people nor the authority to discuss those issues. Mm -hmm. And so we made enormous progress on what you know you might consider to be the the soft issues or the the the, the, the secondary issues or tertiary issue, tertiary issues. But from the United States perspective, the primary purpose of all of this yeah. was the denuclearization. And we had in mind a roadmap on how to get there uh, with an agreed end state and denuclearization. It would begin with a freeze of all the programs, and there would be way stations along the way. And going back to the construct that I laid out in the Stanford speech, we would be moving in parallel and simultaneously on all four, now five of these tracks. And the idea was to set up an iterative process where we would make progress, build confidence and trust, and that would create more opportunities to move to more complicated issues as we move down the way. We had in mind a very detailed roadmap on denuclearization, which we could not get the North Koreans to uh, our, uh, at the working level. And, and I, I think they truly were not authorized. Mm. We couldn't get them to engage in that discussion. And so what we did at the end is we plopped into that roadmap our vision for it. And we said, OK, uh, we have gotten as far as we can go. Um, there's a lot, a lot of a lot of good content here of things that we can uh, we can advance on, but everything has to be included in this. And if we can't make progress on denuclearization, then we can't agree to this. Yeah. And so here's our proposal. We gave that to them. That's the document that uh, that Ambassador Bolt was referring to. That document 100% aligns with the uh, interagency uh, consensus on the uh, on the negotiating roadmap, but. It, did, it wasn't a subject of agreement for either us or the North Koreans because they were not they were not entitled to dis, they were not empowered to discuss it. 
And so that's where we left it at the working level discussions in advance of the leaders arriving and with the hope that when the leaders met, that they could begin to make progress in, 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 in because the North Koreans were clear that that was a leader level discussion. Let me just interrupt uh, they even, they, and ask, has the uh, the text or the substance of that document ever been made public or leaked to the press? Okay. No. And the, uh, you know, when, when, when we press our North Korean counterparts on this, that they, they you know, this was why we were there Yeah. Uh, in, in advance of the leaders coming, they'd say that, um, the uh, the leader is going to bring a big present. Oh for right, the present President Trump. Kind of these kind of just using euphemisms, but uh, you know we couldn't agree to something that we couldn't see, and you know I I don't think our logic escaped them, and so we stalemated on that point, and so we didn't have an agreement. What we had was a document that laid out uh, our vision for a roadmap for each of these five, now five areas of potential cooperation. And that's that's what John's uh, referring to in his book mm. that he didn't like. And you know, I got to tell you, Jocko, um, it was a lot of good work there, yeah. and we were we were close. And there's a lot of that is still, uh, in theory, on the table for the Biden administration. But it was my view, and it was my view on the day that we 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 uh, table dropped that final version with our North Korean counterparts that none of this was going to be possible if they didn't it didn't. Um, buy into the roadmap on complete denuclearization. And it was complete denuclearization, including you know, production, including biological and chemical weapons, which we, uh, in our larger vision of elimination of weapons of mass destruction needs to be included in this. Of course, it included missiles. Um, and, uh, but, but we didn't get any, we really didn't get any further on that document. And by the time the leaders came, that document was, was it, 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 it didn't end up on the cutting room floor, but it didn't go any further. So is it is that what went wrong at Hanoi that that Kim Jong Un just wasn't ready to negotiate on actually denuclearizing? So Jacko, uh, it was clear that he they had not given any authority to their negotiators. Yeah. So that was that was the first missed opportunity because a lot of these issues could have been teased out if they had a position. But there was it was clear that those issues, which it, it shouldn't come as an entire entirely as a surprise to us. Were, were considered to be the sole purview of the leader. And so Chairman Kim came to Hanoi and he had a, he had a proposal on denuclearization, mm -hmm. but it was very different than our vision. And it was one that uh, the president over the course of the two days of the Hanoi summit tried to get Chairman Kim to move beyond, but without success and, and ultimately led to the, um, the, the summit not producing a success, successfully producing an agreement. The, the, by the way, the summit between the two leaders was was not, Acrimonious mm. at all, but um, they parted on good terms, right? They parted on good yeah. terms. Um, systemically, President Trump's ability to um, to absorb uh, a summit that didn't produce a, the preferred outcome was a lot, lot better than I think in the North Korean system. Mm. So while they they may have parted uh, parted affably, you know, I think the president you know was uh, was back on his plane and soundly sleeping that night. But in, inside the North Korean system, I fear this was um, much more of a shock to the system because, you know, things are designed for the preferred outcome, and 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 this didn't design, deliver the preferred outcome. I think the preferred outcome was was the proposals that Chairman Kim uh, was tabling uh, upon his arrival. You know, I I think as is self evident, it just didn't, that just didn't cut it. How I mean, th this proposal obviously that's the big present that uh, that your working level. Uh, counterparts were talking about Kim Jong-un bringing to the, the Hanoi summit. 
How different was his proposal from the roadmap that you had, uh, you and your team had, had mapped out? Oh, very different. It was a one-off. It was, uh, you know, the offer, which, you know, this has been uh, publicly described. The offer was to close Yongbyon. Mm. I believe we've, this would be the third time that we've reached an agreement to close Yongbyon. Um, and, uh, and quite frankly, uh, over the course of the, over the course of the 20, 27 years, we've been grappling with the North Korean nuclear weapon program since the agreed framework. The North Korean nuclear weapons program has grown far beyond Yongbyon. And so closing Yongbyon wasn't eliminating North Korea's nuclear weapons program. It was closing one facility. There are differing views mm. uh, among, among experts in and out of government as to the importance of that. And it's, it's not inconsequential by any stretch of the imagination, but it's also not complete denuclearization. Um, closing of Yongbyon, uh, if that's all you did, and then you dusted your hands and said, you know, the job is done, would have left North Korea in a position to continue to produce nuclear weapons. And that was not, uh, that was not going to be acceptable to the president um, and, uh, and certainly wasn't acceptable to any of us and was never, uh, never, uh, uh, never something that we could compromise on. But was the president right to walk away? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, you know, the president sensed that the gap was too mm. big. And in the president, you know, I, I, I want to give Ambassador Bolton uh, uh, credit here that he did a tremendous job making sure the president was fully and deeply prepared for this summit meeting. And the president was uh, as prepared as he had been for anything I've, I've ever worked with, ever worked with him on. He understood the breadth of the North Korean programs. He understood the challenges of various dimensions of it. And so when Chairman Kim presented the proposal with closing young beyond the president and the secretary of state who was with him just immediately recognized that this was, this was a partial step. And, you know, we're, we're it could have been a, a more interesting give and take mm -hmm. Jacko, if it had been in a context of a larger approach, a roadmap, if you will, but it was presented as not a step in a step-by-step -step process, but the step. Right. This is it. We're this one is, and done. This is, we're one and done. And there was no suggestion that more was to come. Mm. And in exchange, what uh, what uh, the North Korean proposal demanded from the United States was to uh, work in, through the United Nations to lift all of the sanctions, four or five UN Security Council resolutions that affected uh, uh, the important export of various goods and transactions in North Korea that the North Koreans characterized as, um, as sanctions that affect civilian or, or you know, the quality of life of people. The North Koreans were clear that they weren't requesting the lifting of all sanctions, but, but that's a, that was a, a parsing because the only other remaining sanctions in place would largely be the, the, the sanctions that exist against direct trade with the weapons entities in North right. Korea. Uh, otherwise, you know, all sanctions on petroleum products, on seafood, on, on uh, metals and ores and so on, all that everything would be lifted, machinery imports, everything would be, all sanctions would have been lifted under a North Korean proposal. Mm. And so, you know, that position, and I think the president understood this intuitively, the position the United States would then be in is we essentially would be underwriting an ongoing North Korean nuclear weapons program. Mm. We'd lift all the sanctions. North Korea would, by the way, there was no offer to to abandon any of the existing nuclear weapons or missiles either. It was simply to close right. Yongbyon. Um, there, was, there was also an offer to sustain the testing moratoria um, that uh, that informally by by not by formal but it, by uh, unilateral uh, uh, North Korean decision are in place 
it was lacking in the larger vision that not only was from a national security perspective, that not on terms that could be acceptable to the United States of America, but more importantly, Jaco, it really missed the moment. Mm. It really missed the opportunity that was in front of North Korea at that moment. And uh, that's where I saw the inflexibility of the system uh, right up to and including uh, the leader of the country. Now, President Trump, you said he was um, uh, the most prepared you'd ever seen him during the time that you worked with him. Um, was he not distracted by what was going on back in the United States? There are some reports that he was spending too much time watching uh, he's Michael Cohen on TV. And, and did, did that affect the process at all? Not, not that I noticed, and I hope that no, uh, none of the calculations about how to play out uh, the uh, summit uh, from the North Korean side were premised mm. on that. You know, um, uh, I've, I've worked for other, I worked for uh, with or or directly for other presidents, and uh, you know, part of the part of the success or part of the uh, secret of doing the job is to be able to compartmentalize, and um, uh, you know, without a doubt, the whole congressional testimony and all that was playing out in the president. But, it, but interestingly, you know, I consider this kind of testament to the seriousness of the moment and, 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 and also the president's preparation for that summit, that in his press conference uh, the afternoon after the final meeting with Chairman Kim, I think he only got one question out of a couple dozen that even, even touched on that. It, the, the, the debate, uh, the, the, the public focus was, as I would have hoped it would be, was on what was happening there in uh, in in um, Hanoi, yeah. and so uh, I didn't I didn't sense uh, any distraction at all. Um, we had uh, we had all the president's top advisors there, the Secretary of State, and myself, and Allison Hooker, the National Security Advisor, Chief of Staff, um, the uh, the uh, uh, Senior Director for Asia, Matt Pottinger, and the president asked everyone their views, and it was there was a unanimous view. That um, that the proposal that that Chairman Kim put on the table wasn't the gap was still too big for us to to be able to reach an agreement. And so the president's view was, let's keep at it. Let's let's continue to work away at this, narrow the gap, and if we can get it close enough, uh, it would make sense to have another meeting where we can then then we can uh, uh, seal that or close it. And so um, I, I wouldn't say I was uh, naive as to the likelihood of, uh, of, of turbulence mm. to come after the Hanoi summit uh, was not successful in producing an agreement, but we still uh, harbored the hope that we could get back with the North Koreans and, um, and that we could narrow this gap, that, that the failure in Hanoi would potentially be set to seed, you know, plant seeds for, for trying to find the, uh, finally trying to make uh, some progress on, on the denuclearization of the peninsula, the full denuclearization. And unfortunately, that proved not to be the case as the Chairman Kim returned to Hanoi and it, we entered a, a prolonged period of quiet at that point. Now, late that night in Hanoi, after the talks had broken down, the North Koreans gave their own version of events in a uh, sort of a late night, quite suddenly called uh, press conference. Um, are you familiar with, with the, the claims that they made there that they, uh, you know, uh, I think that the North Koreans sounded very much like they were the wronged party and that they uh, were being unfairly portrayed as, as not uh, offering, you know, what was asked. 
I, I saw the press conference. Yeah. Um, I watched it on, on YouTube the next day and I, uh, cause I was on a plane, uh, to Manila during the night. Uh, so I was greeted with the news of that when I woke up the mm. next morning early and I read the transcript and, you know, honestly, description that principally, uh, vice minister Chase on gave, uh, didn't differ substantially, uh, from our description. In fact, I think it was, you know, with a couple of qualifiers. It, uh, or adjectives, you know, it, you know what it, I think uh, what what uh, I don't have in front of me, sure. Jaco, but I think what Vice Minister uh, Chadwick uh, said was that we didn't ask for a lifting of all sanctions, just sanctions affecting um, civilian mm. life. And you know, we characterize it as is the effectively requesting the lifting of all sanctions. Right. It's, a, it's a qualitative uh, distinction without a difference. At the end yeah. of the day, we both knew what was on the table was the lifting of all the sanctions on economic uh, matters. The, um, so the, the, I, I, I'd have to look at it again, but I don't think I would quibble with anything in the description. Mm. But the question is whether, I think the, the, the disagreement or, the, or the, uh, the gap was whether or not it was enough. Yeah. I think that was ultimately really where it fell. And for the North Koreans, uh, this was all they were willing to offer. And for us, it fell short of what, what we needed to unleash an enormous amount of other activity between the two sides on these different roadmaps. You know, the other thing I would say is that um, it was clear that there was a intentional strategy to not permit these issues to be tested at the working level, that there was a desire to shoot the moon in the leader level mm. meeting, that, that Chairman Kim would make the pitch to President Moon. And I hope I just hope there was no false expectation that the president was somehow desperate for a deal and that that something like this would sell. The uh, it, it, unfortunately uh, there was there was no spade work in advance and and it fell short. And even in the in the last literally the last moments of the of the summit meeting, when uh, Vice Minister Chesani emerged from Chairman Kim's hold room to try to refine the proposal on the closure of Yongbyon. Not only was there no certainty on the North Korean side as to what their own proposal was, and here we are literally in the waning minutes as the president's motorcade is already positioned and, and he's uh, simply waiting to, to do a farewell handshake with Chairman Kim. So the two leaders are still you know, sitting together, he, he, but, but you and Chase on here are in a separate no, room. No, they're, they're, they're in their respective oh, rooms as we, as we kind of uh, ponder the kind of next ah. steps. And then... Uh, and whether or not there's any any further progress possible, and so the president president uh, uh, certainly doesn't want to leave without a farewell yeah. to Chairman Kim, and so, uh, but you know, as that's slowly kind of coming together, and you know, Chairman Kim would be brought out of his old room, and President would come out, they'd meet and just for an, another brief handshake and discussion. Uh, Chesani, uh, Vice Minister Chesani, emerges from uh, Chairman Kim's hold room, and, and Jacko, I, I've talked about this in public before that this is the first time that we had any discussion at a detailed mm. level on, on what the North Korean proposal even oh. was. And so my first question, which is an obvious one for anybody who understands the Yongbyon complex is what is Yongbyon? You know, what, you know, there's three square miles to this facility with dozens of buildings that play different parts in the North Korean nuclear weapons program. And you know, what are we talking yeah. about? You know, in the past, it was, it was just the, uh, the cooling tower or there mm. was the, you know, the plutonium reactor possibly, or this or that, you know, what is it? Is it uranium? Is it uh, plutonium? 
Is it you know, any of the other uh, any other critical materials that are manufactured there, or, or machinery? Or is it the entire facility? What is it? And and I asked her, and she didn't oh. know. She had to go back a second time to find out what it was. But this isn't to to criticize the North Koreans so much as the point I'm trying to make is the working level discussions have to have to be substantive and have to tease out these issues if the leader level discussion is going to uh, be successful. And I, I think that was probably a real mistake on the North Korean part is I, I think they I think they thought the president was probably going to agree to it. And, I, and unfortunately, mm. them, uh, that proved not to be the case. Now, a couple of months after Hanoi, of course, there was the, uh, the DMZ mini meeting uh, on June 30th, 2019. In a recent episode of this podcast, we had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Morrow on the show to talk about uh, his perspective of it. Uh, you were there to negotiate beforehand. How did you feel about it? Uh, was this a meeting that was going to keep the process on track after the failure and bitterness of Hanoi, or, or what was it? So a lot was happening between the Hanoi summit and the meeting at Pamunjom. Um, and it, among the things that were clear to us is the foreign ministry was was ascendant in the diplomacy. Ah, yes. um, so this is where the shift happened after Hanoi is the United Front Department, uh, uh, Chairman Kim clearly transferred the portfolio to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Chesani became a much more visible and vocal spokesperson um, in typically uh, cryptic messaging that we would spend way too much time trying to interpret and translate. And Kim Yo-jong started to speak out more mm. as well during this period. But we were completely uh, unable to gain any response from the North Koreans regarding re-engaging, even though the way that President Trump and Chairman Kim at least had left it was that let's keep at it. Let's try to close the gap further. Let's get together and, and reach an agreement. But we need to get our teams together. Chairman Kim was non-committal. Um, in, in fairness, uh, Vice Minister Chesani uh, was clear to me that, that <laughs> to use her words, that they didn't understand our method of calculation, yeah. and that um, and that um, that she wasn't sure what was possible after that. But we persisted. We we tried to um, we tried to get them to engage. They won, um, and so we went into you know, four uh, four months of March, April, May, June. Four months of of uh, just complete mm. silence, no response whatsoever to any outreach. And you know how, uh, I think the, the whole world knows how the Pamanjam summit uh, came about. It was uh, through a presidential yes. tweet. It was, a, it, there was no, there was certainly, we were mindful that the president was going to be in Seoul, a, a, a hop, skip and a jump from the DMZ. Um, and in fact, part of the president's schedule was a visit to the DMZ because he'd not been able to go mm -hmm. up there on his previous trip to Seoul uh, due to weather concerns. Right. And so there was some, uh, there, 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 we, we certainly weren't unaware, but there was no consideration of setting up a, uh, a meeting with Chairman Kim. And there was quite frankly, a little expectation considering the, the state of communication between the two sides, that there would be any interest in the North Korean side to do that anyway. And so um, I was, uh, <laughs> I had left my cell phone off. It was my uh, first night in Seoul. I'd, I'd arrived in Seoul in advance of the president and the secretary of state because the um, uh, the, the president was meeting with Chairman, uh, or excuse me, President Moon on a number of things, including a protracted session on North Korea policy, and they wanted me there. And so I'd flown in separately the day before, and I got a call, uh, I don't know, about 6 a.m. from Osaka, where the secretary was with the president at the uh, G20 summit. And the secretary said he'd ridden back uh, from dinner with the president the night before, 
the leader's dinner and the president had raised the possibility that, you know, he was going to be in Seoul. Um, it's very close. He's, in fact, he's going up to DMZ. You know, would it be, would it be uh, a, um, would it make sense to reach out to Chairman Kim to, uh, to see if he wanted to meet? You know, this is, this is Saturday morning, yeah. uh, Jocko. Yeah, and you weren't even, you weren't even sure that North Korea checked Twitter at that time. Yeah, well, I, I was, I was, uh, and I was, I was rousted from bed from one of one of my uh, one of my team, who had the state operations center had found yeah. him, and he had had his ringer on his phone, so he knocked on my door and woke up. So I'm talking to this secretary, and we went through the, the, the exactly those pros and cons. You know, how do you communicate it? Um, you know, you know, does this is this help mm. or hurt? Does this make sense? Are the North Koreans inclined to do it or not inclined to do it? And there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and so, secretary said, well. Uh, let me let me go back and walk th walk through the president uh, with this, and then and then uh, and then we'll see. And so I uh, I I popped my uh, coffee maker, you know, slug in, and was making my first cup of coffee, and flipped on the television just to catch up on the news. I was watching yeah. CNN, and even before my coffee started brewing, there was breaking oh, news no. of the president had uh, issued a tweet uh, to Chairman Kim to meet in Palmajon right. Village, and uh, I said, okay. Here we go. We're off yeah. to the races, and uh, and so president tweeted, and uh, uh, the member of my team who was with me there, uh, and I thought, how are they going to get to us? How are they going to reach out to us? So we let the let the border uh, let, let the let our team know up at Pamajan mm -hmm. Village, at the guard post with the uh, with the hotline communications, um, the North the South Koreans. We communicated with them. I, I communicated with General Abrams to to let him know. Uh, uh, you know, he was uh, being a great uh, army general. He was up early yes. anyway. Uh, and then, uh, and then uh, my, uh, my uh, team member, uh, we agreed he should monitor KCNA and sure as huh. shooting by, by about 11 o'clock, there was a uh, news release on KCNA from Vice Minister Chesani describing the proposal as mm. interesting, but, but the North Korean, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but, uh, but, the, but it wasn't clear what the American objectives were for right. this meeting. And I, I, for a second time that day, I thought, oh, my God, this is going to happen. Right, because that's a fast response was from the North Koreans than, you know, than any normal channel of communication. Yeah, immensely <laughs> faster. And, by the way, that statement that was released by Vice Minister mm. Che was, uh, wasn't, uh, was, wasn't no. It was, what are yes. the terms? And, you know, we were in the souk at that point. This thing was happening. It was just a matter of finding the right comfort level and right framework. And so, um, uh, again, General Abrams and his uh, team were uh, incredibly supportive. Um, we, uh, we communicated uh, uh, through the uh, hotline wow. that um, we, wanted, uh, we wanted to come up to the DMZ mm -hmm. for a meeting that afternoon to, to, to answer any questions and work out the terms. And um, you know, uh, we were on again, off again on that hotline being answered, and we were in a period in which, you know, Sean talked about, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Morrow talked about this in his interview yeah. with you, that, you know, th there were periods when they just, it just wasn't answered. Well, our our, our guys called over to their oh. guys, and nobody answered, nobody answered. And I can just imagine a couple of, you know, North Korean corporals sitting in this room with the phone <laughs> ringing, looking at each other, thinking, I'm not answering it. And, uh, and so nobody answered. And so we resorted to a, a tactic that our, our commanders had authorized during the tensions in 16 and 17, which was that uh, a US officer with a South Korean interpreter uh, uh, would go down to the 
to the to the to the line of demarcation with a megaphone yeah. and would, would literally broadcast across the megaphone that they had a message and invariably a north korean would come down with a video right. camera to tape it and then the american would would present the message and and so <laughs> you know god bless him general vince brooks uh later on instituted the rule that if there's a north korean soldier standing right in front of you put the megaphone down because <laughs> up until then up until then they, they were literally broadcasting the message from a foot away into the face of a north korean soldier on, on a megaphone but um we found they found a happy medium for that form of communication that message was passed there was a, a period of silence and then there was a scurry of activity yeah. and a i believe a general officer uh uh called for another meeting came back and this time it was clear pyongyang had signaled you know answer the yeah. darn phone and so then became a a, a, a a negotiation during the course of the day for a meeting that ultimately took place after dark that night tremendous support from uh from uh, u.n command and usfk uh, uh, uh general abrams gave us gave uh, uh, uh allison to me a helicopter oh, we nice. flew up um the north koreans had changed the uh the meeting time uh, well, I confirmed a meeting time that was required us on relatively short notice to get yep. up there. Um, we were met by Sean, by Lieutenant Colonel mm -hmm. Morrow, who was as fine a U.S. Army officer as I ever have worked with in my career. He had he had been uh, my personal uh, a guide at the DMZ on several occasions up until that mm. point, so I knew Sean and uh, had utmost confidence. And he and another he and a, and a driver took uh, my colleague and I uh, across the DMZ. Uh, to Tongelgak, where we were met by uh, by uh, two North Koreans. The um, you know, this is my first time crossing right. the DMZ, and in Jakko, there's not a road. I guess it stands to reason, considering the the nature of that. But there's no road. You you literally uh, you, you you drive around the end of the yeah. buildings to the right, and then you kind of curl back in, and then you go to like the third tree, and you make a right, and you drive through the, the little stand of brush and trees, and you come out. Uh, back onto a road on the North Korean side, um, but they, they, you know everyone up there knows what they're doing and, and knows the routines and the protocols. Um, we went in and 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 over the course of that evening, uh, discussed the terms for the meeting, what our objectives were, what the president, why the president wanted to do the meeting. Um, the North Koreans asked us to reconfirm it by midnight uh, in writing so that they had it in final form, yeah. and so we hustled back to to you know at the end of the meeting we hustled back we we. Um, we flew back in the helicopter just as the president and his team were arriving. Um, we worked with the White House team to pull together a schedule for the meeting and, and some details on content. Um, and uh, and uh, we got it to the North Koreans that night through again through the through the uh, point of communication at the at the at the, mm. at the DMZ at the Pomanchon Village. It was conveyed up to uh, to Pyongyang and. We figured we weren't, you know, knowing having worked with the North Koreans, we knew we weren't going to get a quick yeah. answer, and so we all went to bed. And uh, next morning, got a call again uh, about six a.m. the next day uh, from uh, General Abrams' team. He'd put some of his best people, um, uh, including excellent, an excellent Korean speaker, U.S. officer, um, with the with that with our uh, the UN command, up uh, to monitor all night. And they called to let us know that they still had not received a reply, but several busloads of people in uniform and and uh, and uh, 
were, were had pulled up uh, into the North Korean side. People were pouring out of the buses and commencing with cleaning and sweeping uh, and so on. And for the third time in 24 hours, I said to myself, yeah. oh my goodness, this is going to happen. And um, we, there was still a lot of thorny work to do. The, the final stages of protocol, particularly between US and North Korea, uh, even just unintentional things, you know, where you should best position cameras, right. how you should do this or that can become very challenging. But we sent the president's deputy chief of staff up there along with um, with Chairman Kim's uh, head of his bodyguard command and they met. Uh, and over the course of uh, three or four hours, they uh, hammered out the protocol, the, you know, the step-by-step, -step, the location, the you know, placement of various things and and it was done. And uh, probably about 11 o'clock that morning, it was it was final. And by um, one o'clock, the president was meeting with Chairman Kim at, uh, at the line of demarcation, shaking hands and then walking into North Korea as the first president to visit North Korea uh, since the uh, since or probably ever. Now, I look back at some of that footage uh, on YouTube earlier today and I, I couldn't see you in there. Were you there? Just like uh, Kim Yo-jong. I'm uh, <laughs> not trying to get in the picture. You're hiding behind a but, pillar somewhere. Um, in, in, uh, in the meeting itself, when the leader meeting happened was Chairman Kim and Secretary mm -hmm. Pompeo, and it was um, Ryung Ho, and uh, you know, Chairman Kim and Ryung Ho and Secretary Pompeo and, um, and the president. So it was a two ah. plus two. I and my team and um, my North Korean counterparts were all in a hold area outside the room. Vice Minister Chae Sun was there. She and I spoke for about mm. an hour uh, on and off there, as well as many other introductions. Um, the uh, you know all the president's senior staff were out there as well, so there was a lot of mingling between the the two delegations while the two leaders uh, were in the meeting. Um, you know, one of the things uh, it, it, when you've been around Washington a long time, one of the things, particularly when you're up at Pumanjan Village and the president is flying out directly after that meeting, you don't want to miss the motorcade. And so, as the meeting was beginning to wind down, and you know we were reaching a point at which the two leaders were going to come, I made my way. Uh, closest to the door uh, to be ready to, to jump out uh, to get in the motorcade. The debrief would come later on the plane. And um, the president came out and I, I heard my name being shouted from uh, up the stairs in the building. And so I, uh, you know, someone came and said, the president oh. needs you. And it came up and the pre president explained that he and Chairman Kim had agreed in their discussion to relaunch negotiations in just two to three weeks. Each side agreed that they would appoint a trusted interlocutor mm -hmm. to lead the negotiations. The president said he had already he'd already had his person. It was me, and the president then asked me to stand behind him when he did his press conference. He did a press avail, not with Chairman Kim, but the press avail was with President Moon afterwards, yeah. which was the concluding uh, concluding event of the president's uh, uh, bilateral meetings. And so I stood behind the president. So you'd have seen me in that, Jocko. Ah. Um, but but the president was was himself trying to very very much emphasize that that we were ready and that that he, that he had a trusted interlocutor uh, to lead the negotiations and the North Koreans Chairman Kim in the course of the meeting um, was very forward leaning and said that they would do the same and so we ended that meeting uh, with a sense okay perhaps uh, perhaps you know we've got Hanoi behind us now and and perhaps in two to three weeks we can be back at this there's still you know, a year and a half before yeah. the election, so let's let's get at it, and and we uh, 
we, uh, you know, the president, uh, president afterwards pulled me aside and, and really strongly uh, gave me encouragement to really test, uh, you know, move fast, you know, get something, uh, uh, you know, with the North Koreans that met his objectives and that he would, he, you know, uh, what he said to me is you get the deal, I'll solve mm. the deal. Um, and, uh, and the president was committed. He really, he really wanted to make progress, albeit on terms that met our expectations. And so we were ready to go, Jocko. And uh, we left, we left, um, we left Pyong, we left the DMZ. We went down to Seoul, and uh, flew out that night and returned home. Was there actually anything of substance talked about between the leaders on denuclearization, or was it really just sort of you know, pleasantries and general chit chat? I wouldn't say pleasantries. I'd say they were resetting hmm. the dialogue. Um, Hanoi was clearly still yeah. looming. I think um, the president, Chairman Kim, wanted and the president wanted to reassure Chairman Kim that the United States was committed to this process, but the president was looking for similar assurances. So I'd say it was it wasn't wasn't a substantive. It was, but it was resetting uh, the uh, the uh, basis for U.S. North Korea diplomacy in the aftermath of of the uh, uh, failure of the, the Hanoi summit to uh, produce an, an outcome. Now we would have done this, we would have been happy to do this the week sure. after Hanoi, but it took the North Koreans a little bit longer than us to work through So that, that. was at the end of June, that uh, DMZ yeah. meeting. Um, and then in early October, 2019, there were these uh, working level talks uh, in Stockholm. Uh, was there anything substantive between those two? Just step back yeah. a second. So yeah. keep in mind uh, what, what the two leaders discussed at the DMZ was two to three weeks. Yeah. It was not until October that we finally heard from them regarding a meeting. And so we had, we had anticipated, and needless to say, I and my entire team, the Secretary of State, our entire schedules were cleared to move. <laughs> but yeah. there, was, You're there, ready. there was no yeah. move. And so... It took three months for that meeting to happen. All June, wow. all July, all of August, all of September. It wasn't until October. So again, um, something that was a recurring yeah. pattern, not just after the Hanoi meeting, but after many of the meetings, that there was a lot mm. of enthusiasm and energy between the two leaders coming out of the meeting, Jocko. But then on the North Korean side, it would fall flat. Well, what do you put that down to, Steve? What's going on there? Is there something internal? Uh, you interviewed Thomas Schneider. Yes. That's a hypothesis, his view that there's you know an internal dynamic. I don't know. It's uh, just you know if you told, if, if if you expressed a view to most of the experienced North Korea experts uh, in the United States or in South Korea, and suggested there could be any governor on the decision making or or direction of the leader, they would scoff at it. Almost, I'd say nine out of ten would scoff at it. And yet we saw a recurring mm. pattern of of momentum coming out of the meeting same with yeah. october when secretary october of 2018 when secretary of state pompeo met with chairman kim there was a lot of energy coming out of that meeting and then it just fell flat again and i don't know I, I don't know the answer jocko that's another one that we'll have to wait until mm. they open the archives yeah, uh, to the satisfy archives. my curiosity but in any event it took three months and and, and lo and behold Gosh. um Yet again, my interlocutor was a person who I'd not met before. So if, in the first iteration, it was uh, Kim Hyuk Chol. In the second iteration, it was Che Sani. In the third iteration, it's now a new uh, new uh, individual, uh, Kim Young-gil. Right. He was sort of a roving ambassador uh, of the foreign minister of, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yeah, so he, he? He had, his previous assignment had been ambassador of North Korea to Vietnam. 
And he was, he mm. and, and my Vietnamese counterparts who were incredibly supportive of our diplomacy throughout and tried to play a constructive role uh, uh, with us when it came to North Korea. Knew him well, and I had spoken to my uh, my counterpart in Vietnam about about uh, Ambassador uh, Kim, and and uh, you know he's he's a very careful and, and professional diplomat, but um, not one to uh, not one to deviate an iota from the party line. And so, uh, but you know, uh, you asked me at the very beginning of our very long discussion here. <laughs> You know what kind of a relationship, what kind of connection could be formed with with the uh, North Korean counterparts? But here we are, you know, a, a third kind of substantial, potentially substantial meeting, and a third different interlocutor across the table for me. Um, right. So this time it was Kim Young Gil. Yeah, he had been ambassador to Vietnam, and he was the ambassador to Vietnam. I believe I'm quite certain actually that he was ambassador there even during the uh, during the Hanoi summit. He came back to. Ah. He came back to. He was. He finished his tour. There wasn't. A, I didn't sense. We didn't sense there was anything other than simply he had completed his assignment, and so in the in the months after that he had come back to um, Pyongyang to the ministry, and it was from there that mm -hmm. he was assigned to lead the North Korean delegation that came to meet with us in Stockholm in October of 2019. And what can you tell us about those talks? They were definitely the most constrained uh, of all the talks that we had. Very strictly prescribed engagement. For example, the um, uh, and, and by the way, in typical fashion, uh, in working with the North Koreans, none of this is set. You know, you already in Stockholm, and then you begin talking about what time will we meet and how many hours will we meet. You know, it's, it's none of this. It, it, actually, in fairness, in the in the meeting, in the, the trip to well, even then, the trip to um, Pyongyang. My team and I, when we first traveled to, to Pyongyang in January of 2019. There was a little bit more detail, but we didn't really have an agenda or schedule until locked until we were there. But that was probably the the, the most organized of the meetings. Usually, it's you know uh, we'll tell you when we see you, and and you don't even know who mm. you're meeting with. Incidentally, you know you, right. you fly into the country, and oftentimes, and this isn't just the U.S. Other diplomats will will sit with their whoever their interlocutor is, and they'll be walked through the schedule. And it's for the first time they they really have a sense of who they'll be meeting with. And whether or not the um, you know they'll be getting the meetings that they asked for, and in some cases, uh, I know in one case a diplomat at the airport said, "I'm going home. That's no not boy. a schedule that's worth me uh, uh, coming here, and it's certainly not worth me extending my stay." Um, but they they relented. It's a negotiation. Um, oftentimes, mm. when prince when senior officials are in a meeting with Chairman Kim, develops during the course of the day. It's not something that's committed right. to or agreed to in advance, and it probably depends upon their sense of how the discussions are going with the tone and the and the substance. But in any event, um, we we only began. We met with the North Korean delegation in Stockholm on a Saturday in October of uh, 2019, but only on the Friday before did we have a sense of how long they were willing to stay. Um, you know, whether you know, we we had to be very flexible on our travel arrangements. We didn't know if we were going to meet Friday, Saturday. Or Sunday, or none, uh, you know, or just one day. In the end, what was agreed to is a, a full day meeting on Saturday, and they would mm. make a decision at lunchtime as to whether or not we would be meeting in the afternoon. So, oh. you know, even that remained in play. And, and Jocko, literally huh. until the cars pulled back up at the guest house where we were meeting after lunch, I wasn't sure the meeting the meeting would extend into the afternoon on that Saturday. But we ended up going all day, probably eight mm. ten hours, um, uh, and. 
we took us took a took the opportunity on our side. You know, first of all, um, very different approach to the meeting. Uh, I, I we knew it was going to be Kim Young Gil. That was had been made clear, uh, and that would have been conveyed to us. And so I met him, and I had a, a a little pull aside, just an introductory discussion between the two team leaders, and then we proceeded into into the discussions and um, the uh, North Korean demeanor. Uh, paraphrasing is tell us what you brought basically mm. and uh, and wow and our what we had done is we had sought to go back all the way to to stanford really but we had put together an orderly presentation piece by piece on what we wanted to do with each of these roadmaps and then also what could we do as an initial discussion as a early harvest as a confidence builder for both sides and then set in place an aggressive set of meetings on regular dates scheduled through the course of 2020 to really mm. advance on, on all the things that were still on the table from Hanoi, but had fallen because of an absence of any progress on, on denuclearization. And so we presented that over the course of the morning. We presented more of that over the course of the afternoon. 80% of the talking was by us, but a lot of it was us laying out again a clear framework of how we thought uh, we could proceed. On the other side, um, occasional questions, interjections, North, but generally the view was uh, at each section was, uh, what else do you have? What else are you bringing? You know, yeah. we go section by section. And so we got through the, uh, of course the day it was, was not, you know, uh, we, they broke for lunch, they went, there was no no side meetings. There was no no meals. Uh, you know, even uh, sidebars. The North Korean delegation was clearly under strict instructions to stay together and to not and right. to not no um, you know, no uh, falling to uh, devious American tricks to to uh, to pull aside and chit chat on the side. So there was. Th this is yeah. what I mean by it was the most restrictive uh, set of discussions we had. Go to the bathroom and pay us. Yeah, practically, you know, break times, you know, and uh, and and uh, and of course, I, I, you know, they weren't they weren't mistaken. Of course, we'd love to. I'd love to, you know, get a couple of them on a sidebar and say, where are we going with this? Or you know, is, you know, is there right. is there you know is there a way to, to get this started that works? And, you know, it just wasn't going to happen on that trip, but um, still a constructive discussion for many hours during the course of the day with the bulk of the bulk of the commentary coming or bulk of the presentation coming from us. And we were basically telling mm. them this is this is what we've got. This is a way forward. This will do it. And again, consistent with everything that we've discussed before. And so we got to the uh, got to the end uh, probably about and about five o'clock. Been there. It's been a long day. It was Sweden in October, so the sun's already largely set. And right. my counterpart, uh, you know, we kind of finished up the last session. He says, are you through? And I said, yeah, I think that's, I think we've covered mm -hmm. everything. And he says, well, then I have, I have a statement that I'd like to like to read. And so he reaches uh, into his binder and pulls out a typed statement and proceeds for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes to read uh, the litany of complaints of everything we've done to violate mm -hmm. the spirit of Singapore to show bad faith, to uh, to demonstrate hostility, and on and on and on. And I just I just listened. It, it it was a prepared statement. It was he brought it with him from Pyongyang, and that mm. was possibly the intention all along. Um, I don't know. 
I don't know if they had another statement, you know, they had another statement in his pocket based upon our willingness to unilaterally lift all sanctions against North Korea, that we were off to a great start. Mm. I'm being (laughs) being sarcastic, but I I don't know. They finished and I, and and Jacko, I said, you know, with all due respect, Ambassador Kim, by the way, at one point in the statement, he said that um, he had been led to believe that I was a skilled diplomat and he has been sorely disappointed, but he'll stop there lest he insult Mm. me. <laughs> wow. Um uh, but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a Serbic. It was a reading of a statement. And I said, yeah. I said, Ambassador Kim, I said, you and your team and, and I and my team know that that in no way reflects what was discussed today or the potential for what was discussed today. And and it's disappointing that this is where we are, but that we're prepared to continue to engage uh, to work at this. And we think that we've laid out a constructive vision today uh, and one that that gives us uh, the opportunity to achieve what the two leaders agreed to in Singapore. And we very much hope that that your side will agree to um, uh, to proceed on that basis. And the, the meeting ended. It, it was a flat ending. It wasn't hostile, but yeah. it was flat. And um, we knew, uh, we had gotten heads up that, that because they had reached out to the media, including the Western media, that they wanted to do a... Uh, uh, a presser when they got back to the North Korean mission yep. in, in Pyongyang. And so we were ready for it and, and we anticipated it. And they, they basically gave a truncated version of that statement about how disappointed they were and, and, and cast the meeting as a failure and so on. So we watched it and then we uh, produced uh, a, uh, a statement that was quite contradictory in tone. That the, the, the discussions were, uh, were substantive and while we were unable to make further progress, that the constructive you know, set of initiatives were laid on the table that provide the basis for the two sides to continue to work together. And we very much hope that's the case. I, I think uh, you know, there's differing views on this. My team, some thought this was just payback for Hanoi, that they, they mm-hmm. wanted, to, wanted to kind of rebuff us. Dish out of humiliation. Yeah, rebuff us, and then very quickly uh-huh. get an interpretation out onto the record that that we had basically that, that we had we had failed to convince them that there was a way forward. I, I don't know. I don't know if that was the thinking, and and more than happy to play the part um, of uh, punching bag if if that was their their intention, <laughs> if that would allow us to get forward. But um, move forward, uh, you know, if that satisfied their sense of you know writing the uh, balance sheet, evening it out. But you know, there's there's also uh, um, uh, a possibility that that there just was no give on the North Korean side and that, um, that, that, uh, that they weren't going to, weren't going to go. In any event, uh, you know, the the natural reaction would have been for us to say, you know, you know, same back at you, but it was your fault, not ours. And we didn't. And I think that I, I, I suspect that caused some frustration uh, on the North Korean plans because uh, we didn't use this uh, to create a breach. Uh, And, and, the president was still, uh, the president was still uh, up until, uh, you know, this next summer, uh, entertained the possibility that if we could make progress and he continued to want to try, but everything changed after, after, uh, after uh, Hanoi. I did go back, I'm excuse me, after uh, Stockholm, I did go back to mm-hmm. Seoul um, uh, again in 2019. And that's where uh, I, uh, we, we didn't we didn't try to meet with the North Koreans on that trip, and the North Koreans released some statements to suggest that 
that they wouldn't meet with us and in normally we wouldn't enter a give and take but but since we hadn't asked we did feel you know that it was important for us to say we didn't ask to meet so um yeah. i'm sorry but uh you know but on the other hand uh, we did challenge them to, to do their jobs to get to work um and uh, i know that's a big challenge in that system but i think a lot of people i think a lot of people in the north korean system were sitting back and taking the safe approach because they weren't sure what direction chairman kim was moving or wanted to move. And absent that, it's extremely dangerous for North Koreans to step into the breach, to come up with ideas. It's mm. not a system that rewards that. And so uh, we uh, had a, a, a relatively quiet close to the year. Um, I'll, I'll race ahead of even your questions here, Jocko. Remember this was sure. approaching Christmas of 2019. And we were at that yeah. point being promised a Christmas present, a big surprise. And I think there was yes. one more, um, constructive and, and responsible act by both the, the Chinese and the Russians, my counterparts in both China and Russia. And I, I mentioned my uh, close cooperation with my Chinese counterpart, um, who is now gone, yeah. and he, his successor was in place. But also I, I, my, my uh, Russian counterpart, Igor Morgolov, Vice Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, Deputy Foreign Minister in, in the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, was an was a extraordinarily good partner. And I, I have every expectation that it was through uh, diplomatic engagement by the Chinese and Russians that the North Koreans were persuaded, I think in a tough discussion, quite honestly, from mm. uh, undertaking some kind of substantial provocation at the end of that year. The, the return was the North Koreans and Chinese had advanced a resolution at the UN Security Council that would ease sanctions. Um, our, our problem with that was that it would ease sanctions in advance of any tangible steps on denuclearization. And we simply, we couldn't agree with them on that, although there were a lot of parts of, the, of their resolution that we, we had discussed with them previously in, in some areas of promise that we might be able to pursue. Mm -hmm. But that was, that, was, um, you know, the, uh, that was the end of 2019. And uh, you know, everything kind of settles down. It turns out there is no Christmas present. There also was no uh, New Year's address, as you'll recall which uh, yeah. which surprised us. We were we were highly anticipating some clarity uh, from the New Year's address. There was a protracted party meeting to follow in 2020 uh, with some substantial decisions likely made, uh, uh, not all of them necessarily visible to the outside world. We were still digesting how we could move forward after the events of October. We were certainly welcoming the fact that there was no major breach because of a significant provocation at the end of the year. And then I got a call on a Saturday afternoon in late October, excuse me, late January to come down to the State Department Operations Center where a team of our regional and medical experts awaited me to brief me on mm -hmm. the outbreak of a pandemic in uh, a, a major viral outbreak in Wuhan, China that um, ah. had the potential to be a global pandemic. And that as much as any of the other, any other give and take that preceded, put a lid on the uh, North Korea diplomacy for the remainder of the Trump presidency. It, it, once the COVID outbreak spread globally, once, it, once the, the magnitude of the threat was known to the entire world, including the North Koreans, the possibility of, of any sort of engagement from the closure of North Korea in February or March, whenever North Korea completely sealed its borders yeah. uh, through to through to the inauguration, any 
any expectation of engagement, of direct engagement was uh, unimaginable and there was no possibility to do it otherwise. There's no remote negotiations. There's no, you know, Zoom meetings with the, uh, mm. with the uh, North Koreans, between the North Koreans and the United States. And so, you know, as much as anything, COVID-19 threw a, a wet blanket or put a lid on all this and uh, and that was it that pretty much the rest of it was was managing the uh, the transfer in power here and the um in the transition to the new administration in january well yes and that brings me to the question what to what degree is the biden administration continued um on a similar track in north korea policy i think to a large degree you know, our goal at the after the november 3rd election my team and i had a plan A and a plan B. If President if President Trump had won the election, we had a, a plan of of what the next steps would be in engagement. And our hope was that with the president having a new four-year mandate, the North Koreans might feel that they had sufficient time to come back and test mm. some of the ideas. And so, you know, there's maybe that was a little overly optimistic on our part, but we had hoped that there might be a possibility that we could restart and put some energy behind this with four years of run room ahead. That was plan A. Um, president uh, didn't win the election, President Biden won the election. And so we had a plan B, which was to manage this uh, uh, and try to keep it on an even keel up until January 20th, so that the new president, as I, as I, I have described it, uh, you know, every, it's several, several new presidents have inherited a US-North Korea relationship in which proverbially the car is in the ditch. And our, our goal was to, uh, as much as possible, we couldn't control it all. Of course, North Korea gets a vote was to leave uh, the Biden administration with the car on the road, with the uh, keys mm. in the ignition, the engine running, and they could drive it any direction they wanted. They wanted a tougher policy. If they wanted the same policy, they wanted to offer concessions that they had a full uh, room of maneuver. And um, there's very little that I'm satisfied about my two and a half years of engagement with the North Koreans, I really feel like uh, there was a missed opportunity uh, there in that two and a half years. But I am satisfied of, uh, that we, well, we there wasn't a war on the Korean Peninsula, a low bar to get over yeah. perhaps in some in view of some, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, considering the circumstances of 2017. The second was that we managed to create some stability and sustain some level, but not enough engagement. The third is that we, having seen a transfer of power in the U.S. election, that we were able to transition to the new administration. Um, a, a relationship that they had as much room to maneuver as, as, as they could hope. And, um, and so we did that, Jaco, and we mm. had an in-depth, in-depth transition discussion with them. We went through every dimension of the policy and the communications so that they understood the full picture, including things that, that aren't even disclosable in public. And so they had that wow. picture. And my team and I, and, and you know, much of the team trans, uh, transferred because um, uh, I and Alex Wong, my deputy, uh, were the only, uh, only non-career officials on the team. And so a lot mm. of the team transitioned and were there for continuity. And then of course the Biden administration entered into a, a deep review of policy and ultimately came to the conclusions. But I, I, you know, I would say, um, without any way diminishing it, it, it is largely the same, but it's also largely in the same. And that I, I've talk, spoken to Ambassador Sun Kim about this. They're ready to go. 
Um, and, but they face the same challenge that we faced intermittently throughout two and a half years that I was in government is it, the North Koreans have to be willing to go as well. We can't, we can't, there can't be a one-handed clap here. We, you know, we've got, it takes two to tango to use plenty of cliches here. Um, we mm. need the North Koreans at the table. Uh, it may not work. It's possible. And in, in the North Korean system, failure is not an option that we can, can be contemplated. But without engagement, uh, it's never going to get tested. And so it's, it really is uh, at this point, and as it was uh, for much of my tenure, up to the question of whether uh, North Korea is prepared to engage. And, um, and that, I think that remains the, the overriding obstacle to, uh, to, making, uh, uh, to testing any other ideas out there. The U.S. and South Korea, of course, have electoral timelines that can substantially change the political landscape every year or two, one way or the other. Uh, and for good or ill, North Korea, of course, is not beholden to such seasonal fluctuations. And, and I wonder to what extent that helps or hinders the process. Yeah, well, you know, it, it without a to... doubt, the misalignment of, of people's political horizons and political timelines can lead to, to uh, conflicting calculations. You know, uh, if you're if you're uh, Chairman Kim, you know, you look at your grandfather who lived into his 80s and you might think, well, I've got 50 yeah. years. That's going to be, you know, a good, good eight to 10 presidents. You know, if this one doesn't right. give me the outcome I want, I'll wait till the next one. Um, in the South Korean system, um, not unlike ours, not only do they have that electoral process that produces a new president every five years, but they can have pretty big swings between a conservative yeah. and a progressive leader. But you know, everybody's got everybody's got their constraints. And the North Koreans aren't free of their constraints either, Jocko. Uh, crushing sanctions, chronic food shortages, severe uh, economic pressures, a lack of delivery of basic necessities of life to the population in the countryside. And what has clearly been seen over the course of the past year, the uh, interruption of even the high quality of life that's expected for denizens of, of uh, Pyongyang, um, those, those impose their own limits on your horizon as well. I've never been one to advocate or believe that we could bring North Korea to its knees economically. That's, I think that's a, that's, that's a ridiculous assumption. But the sanctions constrain the choices that North Korea has to make. And it affects the timeline uh, that North Korea looks at. You can, you can survive for 50 more years, but will your country survive for 50 more years in mm. the face of the pressures that exist now? Again, I don't think that sanctions alone uh, are sufficient. I think it's sanctions matched by diplomacy that are the essential, uh, essential elements of a, the American and South Korean approach to advancing things on the Korean Peninsula. But unfortunately, it can't, none of it happens without the North Koreans engaged. Well, as you, as you said several times in our discussion, it's important to, and difficult to keep the North Koreans in sustained engagement because there are so often there are these quiet periods when they don't answer a phone call or, or don't answer an email or don't turn up to a meeting. And I, you know, there, there's got to be a way to, to get through that. And I wonder if uh, if maybe the, the first thing that America should do, even before anything else, is to set up that, that liaison office or an interest office in Pyongyang so that there's always a channel, there's always some engagement 
you know, through uh, difficult times and through easier times. I, uh, I am a strong advocate of exactly that. And by the way, that step really doesn't come at anybody's expense. So it's got, right. it's got the added benefit of being something that, that can be done that neither side has to make a concession to the other. Um, and it's not, it's not the only step of, of such a nature, but it's a very important one because presumably, you know, while diplomats in Pyongyang can get the cold shoulder just as easily as diplomats based uh, in Washington, D.C., um, sure. you, you, you at least have a toehold there. But there's, there's several things along those lines that I think the, uh, the, the United States and North Korea could do together that don't come at the expense of either. Now, I'm, I, and I, 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 uh, I've thought about this a lot. I, I, I'm more than happy to share my view if you're, if you're interested on, on the way forward. I am fascinated. Please, wait. Yes, uh, way forward. All please. right. So, the uh, first thing I'd start with is is setting up diplomatic liaison offices in each other's capitals. So you you, you hit spot on. Uh, you recognize uh, uh, what I what I would conclude is it it, it, it solves a number of issues, including uh, getting you started. We should also uh, begin cooperation on uh, health security, and it can have a lot of dimensions to it. By the way, health security doesn't mean uh, North Korea is receiving aid from other countries. Health security mm -hmm. is uh, issues like a global pandemic in which any population center that's vulnerable is a vulnerability for everybody. Um, so uh, a, a health security dialogue could include COVID-19. It could include, uh, it, uh, include uh, making sure that North Korea, and North Koreans have a role in this, Jaco, but North Korea is included in the, in the global vaccination campaign. The, the yeah, Biden administration yeah. was uh, was has has begun to uh, make generous contributions of vaccines to the Covax facility, and I will note that, and I don't think it was by accident that a senior administration official was explicit in that within that Covax facility, North Korea and every other country are uh, eligible recipients uh, for these vaccines. That solves a couple of problems. One is it's a very constructive engagement that's self-interested on our part, as well as on the North Korean part. Yep. But it also begins to put in place a population that's uh, in a leadership that's able to engage in discussions. Because again, you know, 2020 was a lost year, first and foremost, because mm. of the risk of spread of the infection. I think we could re-energize partnership with non-governmental organizations. Um, this could include uh, uh, areas like uh, health security, but also education, um, and a lot of the organizations that were doing great work in the countryside in North Korea in terms of, of, of assisting the uh, North Korean people in the face of what are only ever more trying circumstances today, in my view, in, in North Korea, although I, I haven't had the opportunity recently to be updated on the exact conditions. I think it's quite severe in the countryside mm. from what I've been able to read. Um, in Hanoi, we left on the table a lot of great ideas on people-to-people -people exchanges issues, uh, you know, exchanges in culture, in education, in sports. Um, it's unfortunate, uh, and at this point, I trust it's too late uh, for North Korea to participate in the uh, Tokyo Olympics, but um, mm. there are other such opportunities, and ones that the North Koreans have, uh, uh, in some of our discussions, been more than happy not only to consider, but actually made suggestions of their own on what might, what might be doable in this regard. Family reunions would be in a huge one. Um, you know, you want to affect the mood of, of the South Korean public and, and, and shape it in a manner to be more 
uh, open to North Korean, South Korean dialogue, uh, this heartaching issue of separation of families, uh, of which every year there's less and less surviving members, yeah. um, but also for the Americans. We have the same here in the United States. It's it's a it's a neglected issue, sadly, but we have many, mm -hmm. many Americans of Korean descent who have family members who they haven't seen uh, since the end of the Korean War either. A, another big one uh, the, for U.S. North Korea relations is the recovery of remains. You know, the president, this is when- That's the one area that did show some uh, promise after uh, Singapore, yeah. right? Some actual yeah, the, in, uh, in, on the ground successes. We sent uh, a delegation, uh, General Minahan, who um, who was Sean Morrow, Lieutenant Colonel Morrow's uh, direct uh, superior. He went up to Wonsan and received uh, uh, 55 boxes of remains that the North Koreans had provided to us uh, in the aftermath mm -hmm. of the Hanoi summit, brought them back where they're in Honolulu at the Defense Department's laboratory, forensic laboratory being identified. Um, I think uh, it, from, from the last reports I had before I left government, there's over 100 remains of over 100 American soldiers uh, to wow. be found in, in, in those 55 boxes. You know, many of them were, were pieces of bone or, or, uh, or even some uh, pieces of equipment that could be identified in, in you know, in this, this long after the war, uh, every, uh, every artifact would be considered to be a remain and would be subject of a, of a, a, a funeral with an honor guard and, you know, full honors and Frank, more importantly, closure for family members. And uh, yeah. I, I don't think a lot of people followed this. I did. And my team did every time the defense department identified one of those sets of remains, they went to small towns sprinkled across mm. this country. In each case, they would show up on a local news show or a local newspaper, and you would see a grieving cousin or an elderly sister who, who last time saw her brother uh, when he, you know, boarded the train to go to the basic training to go to Korea, and you saw instant by instant the closure, the emotional power of this, and 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 the degree to which it allowed people to let go of the hostilities. Uh, that mm. they might have held from that war that ended more than 65 years ago. So remains recovery. One 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 spectacular opportunity would be for North Koreans to cooperate with the United States on the recovery of the remains of um, Ensign Jesse Brown, uh, the first African American aviator in the United States Navy, who was shot down wow. over the Chosan Reservoir. His his uh, wing wing uh, man, Tom Hudler. He uh, landed his crash landed his plane in the same mountain basin to be with Jesse, who was trapped in his plane and ultimately died. Uh, Tom mm. Hudner was um, was rescued by a helicopter moments before North Korean forces uh, encircled the, uh, the the crash site and was was whisked to um, safety and ultimately received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his bravery. But the Jesse Brown story, if you don't know it. Um, Jacko, I, I strongly encourage mm. you to look it up, and it would be a great subject for a future podcast for you. Okay, uh, it's a new one for me. Thank uh, but you. But yeah. the symbolism—this is something, someone who's well known among the uh, in military circles—and it would be such a powerful story and such a uh, mm. an important moment of closure that would create again this whole basket of things I'm talking about don't require any sacrifice on either side. So. That's just a, a nutshell of the type of things that I think could generate Gosh. goodwill and mutual benefit. They're a long way away from denuclearization or normalization or, or uh, a permanent peace on the Korean Peninsula. 
uh, but they're a start. And if if the North Koreans were interested in starting, these are great places that uh, offer mutual benefit without any unilateral concession. If you were asked, Steve, in the next 10 years to be the United States first uh, person to run an interest or liaison office in Pyongyang, would you take that up? I think we need somebody uh, with a lot more experience in North Korea and North Korean languages, no, no, excuse me, uh, in, in Korean language than myself. And I, I'm afraid I would be an inadequate choice compared to many of that. I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, nobody would have confused me with the top 100, probably even the top 1,000 experts on North Korea. I'm more than happy to advise and support. And I do, um, as I think you can you can tell from, uh, from my descriptions, that while I am frustrated that we have yet to find the right combination, and while there are certainly red lines that we have as to what will um, what will address our national security interests for the United States of America. Um, I don't think this is an impossible job and I'm more than happy to, uh, to lend my advice on that. And last question, do you have a tell-all book of your own coming out? I think it's in your hands now. Um, <laughs> I, I'm afraid uh, I was too busy to be writing a book while I was in office and I'm enjoying my time off too much to, to work that hard afterwards. Uh, 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 there are a couple books uh, in the works, and, uh, and and part of the reason why I, I I am responsive, I try to be careful, but I why I am responsive to an invitation like yours, Jacko, is I think it's important for the next generation uh, of North Korean uh, focused diplomats and scholars to have some record, and so yeah. this 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 will have to suffice. Yes, uh, I, 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 at this point. If I could convert our discussion to literature, I think that would be my book, but I, I don't know that I have much more that I could add or that I would add. And I there's certainly more, but not that I could add. So I think that's it. I think you've, I think you've, you've drained me. Oh dear. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm, although I'm glad to hear that it's, it's happened here on NK News. Um, you will not be uh, leaving the East Coast for a, a fellowship at Stanford anytime soon then? Um, I haven't uh, made any uh, decisions on, uh, on what I'm going to do yet, although I will be making those relatively soon, but um, more to come. Well, uh, watch this space then. Uh, I want to thank you very, very much uh, for coming on the show today, Steve Bigan. You've been very generous uh, with your time. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you and, and learning so much about your experience. Well, thank you, Jacko. Uh, it's great to have uh, uh, such an informed interlocutor to, to draw it out. Uh, a lot of this will soon enough uh, uh, fade in my memory. And you know, one of the things that comes from being in government is you can't, you can't bring home your papers or your notes. So um, oh, yeah. you know, unless, unless you've you know, been uh, taking, uh, jotting things down in a private notepad for your book later, which happens in government mm -hmm. as we discussed, um, sure. It's it's all from recollection. So it actually was. I, I'm I'm pleased to have had the opportunity to take this walk down memory lane. I those aren't bad memories, uh, and uh, and I hope I hope uh, we can make the progress that my, I and my team and the president of the United States, most importantly, uh, sought to make over the last two and a half years. I think there's still a possibility. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of our episode. If you already have an NK News account and you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. 
inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And don't forget, if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius who has pliced the audio together in a satisfying way for everybody. Thank you for listening, and check us out next time. <laughs>